Hey, everybody. Stefan Molyneux from Free Domain. I hope you're doing well. Hey, you know all of those shows that I put out, countless shows, really dozens and dozens of shows that I put out without asking for donations and support for the show? Well, this is not going to be one of those shows. So I hope you'll be patient with me as I remind you and ask you and implore you to go to freedomainradio.com slash donate and help out the show. I, we, the world requires your support in order for me to do what it is that I do, to do the research, to take the risks, to have the endless service around the world, to deliver up the shows, to maintain the quality of what it is that I put together for you many times a week. I know how much it means to you. I know how much you care about what it is that I'm doing. And I know because we get the emails, we get the DMs, we get the feedback on how much philosophy has changed your life for the better. You know how hard it is that I work in order to really make a difference in the world with philosophy. And I'm asking for your help and your support in enabling me to be able to do that and to do it better. Freedomainradio.com slash donate is where you need to go. And you can sign up for something. It's a fire and forget. You can sign up for a $5, $10, $20, $50 a month. Just do it once. You don't have to worry about it. It will be handled for you automatically. You don't actually need a PayPal account if you want to just donate using a Visa or a MasterCard or a bank card or whatever. You can give me a one-time donation, which is also very helpful. Repeated donations like monthly donations are helpful in terms of budgeting, figuring out what I can spend. But one-time donations are also very gratefully accepted. So if you do enjoy the shows, and I mean, we both know that this is a unique value proposition that's being generated here at Free Domain. This is a very unique show. There's nothing else that has the breadth and depth of topics that is dealt with here, all the way from personal challenges to massive global demographic situations. We really cover the gamut here. So given the value that I provide in this show, I think it's fair and reasonable to ask you to not be a free rider, to provide value back, to share value for value, and to go to freedomainradio.com slash donate and help out the show. It means something to me. You know, when donations are up, it gears me up with enthusiasm and has me feel that we can conquer the world. When donations are down, it's a little bit tougher to summon the same kind of enthusiasm because I'm a market-based individual and I know the value of financial support. So just as a reminder, just to do the right thing if you consume the show. It costs money, as you know, to produce, and you don't want to be a free rider. You want to exchange value for value. And you can do that at freedomainradio.com slash donate. Just, you know, pause this, do it now, get it over with, you'll feel better afterwards, and then we can have an even more enjoyable time together doing this show. So, for this call-in show, there are four callers, and the aforementioned range of topics really holds true. The first caller, ah, you know, the practical, no, you can make money versus the sky-high dream. This is someone who graduated with a degree in public relations, but loves music most of all. And now that he's out of college, what should he do? Fork in the road time. Do you go with the slow and sure and steady but less than exciting world of public relations? Or do you roll the dice hoping to get double sixes in the music world? There are ways to evaluate these decisions so you're not either compromising or being wildly irresponsible. And we go through the steps in that. Now, the second caller, oh, you've had these arguments. You've heard these arguments before, but I took a new approach on this one. Because this caller is an advocate for capitalism, but 
there are multiple areas where he thinks no regulations are actually detrimental or dangerous. So how can you convince people who believe that regulation is necessary for the support of the free market? Well, there's new ways to do it. The third caller is in the West. He is a former Muslim, and he wants to date women of a particular ethnicity, but he has a challenge being assertive, and he has a challenge even being honest with his family. And we did do a pretty deep dive into that and how that affects his dating prospects, because problems in the dating world usually go pretty deep into personal history. Now, the fourth caller. This rung me inside and out, I'm telling you. Uh, This rung me inside and out. This man's little boy died. And it happened a while ago, and he just can't move past it. He is blocked by a tiny headstone from moving on with his life, and other people, his children now need him. And how can we honor the dead without giving them dominion over us and blocking us from our future? It's a very, very powerful conversation. I put heart and soul, mind and body, everything that I have into helping him with this, and I I think I did. I hope I did. So, yeah, just a reminder, freedomainradio.com slash donate. It's one of a kind. Please, please help us out. All right. Well, up first today, we have Daniel. Daniel wrote in and said, I just graduated from college with a degree in public relations, but I'm not really sure if this is the path I want to take. I'm much more passionate about music and have a drive to practice and work nonstop until I get where I need to be. I've been involved in music since middle school and originally did not want to go to college and instead focus on entering the music industry. After unexpectedly being accepted into a top university, my family urged me to take advantage of this opportunity. Now that I am out of college, I was wondering if you could share some wisdom with me as to how I should proceed in taking the next steps of my life. That's from Daniel. Public relations. Public relations. Boy, there's a a foggy vapor canyon (laughs) that I I dare not tread. (laughs) What does that mean? Is Uh, this like, I don't know, our our star got caught with either a dead hooker or a live boy. What do we do? Like, what is that? Public relations. What does that mean? Um, okay, just to clarify, like the beginning of the call, because I think like my first sentence got cut off. Uh, I was referencing the call you did um, two weeks ago about ambition. Uh, you were talking to um, a kid who was in a similar position to me. I don't know if you recall that. At yeah, all, I do. But, and I thank you for okay. clarifying that. I appreciate that. Yeah. So look at you uh, managing public perceptions already. <laughs> it's like you've got a degree in this or something. <laughs> yeah. Um, public relations, uh, you're right, has like a very negative connotation with it, but um, it has like a wide range of job applications. You can do things uh, from social media management, crisis communications, reputation building, media placement. Like for instance, if you were a company and you wanted to get like a product announcement into um, like CNN or in the New York Times, like you would write press releases and then partnership. Uh, So like working with other companies and kind of um, creating lasting and mutually beneficial relationships. So that's the the textbook answer I'll give you on that one. Boy, it sounds like either one of us fell asleep when you were talking about that. Was that you or was that me? Oh, it's probably you, but... No, no, uh, I, I think sure. it might have been you because the level of excitement in your voice was barely palpable. But yeah, I... So let me just like back up and say like, I kind of... I'm into public relations because I feel like I can use it in music, which is why I chose that. I was originally a music major um, and I just felt like that was a complete waste of money. And my school is one of the top 
schools like they have to have one of the top PR schools in the country. So I figured like that would be a more useful application of like uh, my. I'm sorry, I'm 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 a little confused. So you're a musician. Yes. So why don't you just go make music? Like, why, why would you be in school for all this? Listen, I say this as a guy who, like, I went to theater school, which was, <laughs> well, let's just say there may have been potentially better uses for my time and energies. Although, you know, I think it helped to some degree with what I do now, one way or another. But why not just go and make music? I mean, I'm, I'm pretty sure, like, I can well, think of, I, like, the top I 50 did, like, pop musicians or rock musicians or whatever. I'm not sure too many of them went to Juilliard. <laughs> that's that's correct. But, um, like, I was in a band and I was, um, I, I felt like I was in a pretty good position, but I got an opportunity to go to a top uh, institution uh, because of music, but the, because their music school is bad. So I got into no, but music if school. you're in a band and it's working out, why? Uh, my, you my know, parents, you quit school to be parents. in a band. You don't quit a band to be in school, do you? My my parents were very um, ah, your parents. Yeah. There we go. Well, so your parents they, said, "Well, that's a risky life. You got to have a plan B." Well, exactly. The, those words, exactly. Right. And how much did it cost you to go to college? Uh, I didn't pay for any of it. Oh, who paid? My parents did. Okay, parents, stop doing that shit, okay? Stop paying for your kids to go to college. Do you know why? Because then the kids can't make a rational decision about whether it's worth it. Yeah, I mean, my parents... Sorry, sorry to interrupt. I just want to get a few more details before we go on. Okay, okay. And how long long did you spend in music school? One semester. And how long did it take you to get a degree in public relations? Uh, three and a half years. Okay, so we've got four years of your life studying this stuff, right? Music and public Correct. relations. Yeah. Okay, and uh, still, so like, how much do you think you could have made um, as a musician, it, being in a decent band, you know, getting experience? Uh, how long do you think, uh, how much do you think you could have been paid a year if you'd have worked with the band? I honestly couldn't make that sort of uh, prediction because it it's very volatile. You know, like I I would have hoped to be like you know touring and doing that sort of thing, um, but I I just couldn't. I'm like I, it's it's a very volatile industry as I'm sure you're familiar with. So I don't have like a crystal ball and I can't really say like oh I would have made this much. You know, I could have. I feel like I would have gotten by. Like I would have been able to get by like either if I had to teach or making money purely based on shows, but. See, this uh, is the thing. This is the thing if you're a musician. Let's say that you play four gigs a week mm-hmm. for two hours a pop, right? So yes. there's your eight hours. And I know they're set up and you don't have a road crew when you're starting out and all of that. They're set up and there's breakdown. There's travel and shit like that, right? But here's the thing. Correct. If you want to be a musician, here's what you do. You write music. That's all it's about. I don't consider somebody who only plays an instrument to be a musician any more than Mm -hmm. I consider a record player to be a band or a photocopier to be an artist. You create as a musician. If you're not creating, I don't care. I mean, I genuinely don't care. So if you want to make it as a musician, you do your eight hours gig a week 
Maybe you got another eight hours of setup and breakdown and some travel and all that kind of stuff, but you can still write while you're traveling because you don't all need to drive the van or whatever. But if you are yeah. a musician, you have about 50 hours a week in which you can write music. And that's what you should be doing is just writing music. And yeah, the first hundred songs are going to be pretty bad and they're going to be derivative and people are going to say, oh, it sounds like this guy or it sounds like that guy. And you'll listen back and you'll hear and it'll be kind of boring. And you know what Tina Turner said in that movie about uh, her husband's uh, Ike Turner's music. Hey, these songs all sound the same. And yeah, yeah, I'll get it. And then you'll start to get better. And then you'll start, I mean, I did, I was writing for 20 years before I wrote anything original, really original. Everything else was derivative. That's natural. That's the 10,000 hours. Mm-hmm. So if you want to be a musician, then sure, if it's going to be like, well, I'm in it for the, you know, the, the kicks of, of performing and the groupies and the high. Yeah, okay. Yeah, that's bullshit. Go make some music. Because otherwise, you're just preying on everyone else who's written music. Because if you're a cover band, you're just kind of parasites, right? Because it's just like, well, other people sat down and went through the difficult task of writing music, but I don't really want to do that because that's kind of tough. So I'll just copy other people's stuff and call myself a musician. You're a parasite. You're not a musician. A musician creates. It doesn't copy. And it's fine. You can be a cover band. That's a great way to, you know, the Beatles started as a cover band and I get all of that. And and that's no problem. You can start off that way. The Queen started as a cover band. And then Freddie was like, we got to write our own stuff. If we don't write our own stuff. There's no point being in this band because it's not a band. <laughs> it's just a copy. And so my question is, Daniel, if you had, let's say, you had been, let me bring up my little calc here, right? So let's say that you had been writing music. Let's just say 20 hours a week, right? 20 times 52 times 4. Well, you would have had over 4,000 hours of music writing experience over the past four years. Plus, you would have had an equivalent amount of playing experience because you're kind of playing when you're writing music and then you're playing when you're... So there's your 10,000 hours and you've become a world-class expert in music, right? Correct. Now, what has your music playing and writing been like over the last four years? Um, I was still able to have a band on the side of doing school, but it obviously like wasn't my main focus. Like I, I tried to pretty much, I, my time was spent between doing classes and doing um, like an outside group. And then eventually I had like two outside groups that I was running. Um, so how often would you play a month? How many hours? I would, I would be like pretty much spending, like I had a storage unit I had to practice in because I was living like in an apartment situation. So I would be playing, uh, almost every night for several hours and gigs. We definitely had, um, at least two or three a month in different cities in my state. Wait, so you'd have two or three gigs a month for a couple of hours a night? Yeah, but we would, we, my band was practicing at least three times a week for several hours at a time. And then I was trying to practice uh, six nights a week. Jesus, that's a pretty fucking easy degree, man. <laughs> no, seriously, uh, you can do all of that it, while studying? PR doesn't get like super hard until <laughs> the last year. You think? And, yeah, yeah, you basically well, got a full-time I mean, like, job I mean, like, and you're this, able to waltz your way through this, a degree. God. Uh, uh, I'll, I'm not going to say you're wrong, but like the, the only thing like where that stopped was, uh, like this, these past two semesters, like this past semester, I was 
pretty much like not able to play at all. Yeah, because so, you were actually but, working at yeah. your education rather yeah. than ambling. And through. I was and I was doing like a a huge project, and it kind of just made me realize like, wow, I really would rather do music than this because it just is. And if you'd not, had to pay for it yourself, you wouldn't have done yeah. it, right? <laughs> Correct. Is that fair I to say? Would, like you wouldn't, you wouldn't be graduating a hundred grand or fifty grand in debt for public relations. You'd have gone the music route, right? Yeah. And this is why I say to parents: stop paying for your kids to go to school. Stop paying for your kids to go to school because they, they can't make rational economic decisions if you're numbing them with free stuff. You know, asking eighteen-year-olds to make sensible decisions on their future when you're paying for their school is like asking eighteen-year-old girls to make sensible decisions on family planning when they get free money for having babies. So, how much time did you spend writing? Um, both of my bands were pretty much all original music. So, the the first like three years, I got a decent amount of writing in. No, that's great. Like, yeah. So, I mean, it, like, it wasn't a complete loss of time, but I uh, definitely feel like I have options right now of like, you know, there's the safe path. There's the path where I could, you know, get a job at a PR agency, get a job in a communications thing, make like a, you know, decent income. Or there's like the more, you know, like follow your passion type type route. And I'm kind of just... Uh, you know, cause then I start like looking at, Oh, I'm getting older, I'm getting older. And then, you know, like you're losing all that time. Right. So yeah, I'm just kind of like, and then after listening to your, the other call, which kind of inspired me to write this, um, you know, I actually feel like I have like a drive to go do this. And I just wanted to hear like what your input was on this. Cause I've heard you say like, you know, different things about pursuing the arts over your phone calls that I've listened to. Well, the important thing is to not have regrets. And to not have regrets, you pour everything into your dream. And then if your dream blows up, at least you say, well, it was a nightmare. Right? Yeah. That's the key. Right? So if you want to do music, then do music, but do it 150%. Do it 150%. So I wanted to be a writer. So I took a very advanced uh, writing course and was paired with a well-known Canadian writer. And we worked away on on my book, uh, The God of Atheists. And I wrote for four to five to six hours a day. Sometimes I'd write six to 8,000 words a day. I researched on the time that I wasn't writing. And I wrote the equivalent of four novels in 18 months, which is one novel that's like 370,000 wow. words, which is like a big trilogy, and then another novel, which was originally about 200,000 words, which I hacked down to about 120. And so for me, I was like, well, I want to be a writer. So I took this writing course, which gave me exposure to agents, and I researched, and I wrote, and I researched, and I wrote, and I researched, and I wrote, and that's what I did. Now, I did not become a novel writer. I got amazing reviews. Like one guy who had a PhD in literature, English literature, reviewed my book because my agent was like, you know, I'm trying to sell this book. I like the book. I think it's really good. And so she shopped it out to someone to get a review of the book. Uh, he was a professional reviewer. And he said of my novel, The God of Atheists, this is the great Canadian novel. I've never written it, I've read anything like this before. This is revolutionary. This is the most wonderful thing. It's an, like I, I read this like 
dazzled. And I like every time the phone rang for the next week, I'm like, well, here it is, you know, it comes my career. But uh, of course, for reasons that I understand now, but didn't 20 years ago, it didn't happen. Now, I'm glad that it didn't happen because this is much more important for me to be doing and a much more um, positive thing for the world as a whole for me to be doing. But I was all in, you know, I, I quit my mm-hmm. entrepreneurial career and they offered me like 150 grand a year to go back for two to three days a week. I mean, <laughs> but I said, no, I said, listen, I'm doing this writing thing and tempt me with all the foul money that you want. Uh, I'm going to do this writing thing. And that's what I did. And I put heart and soul in it and I worked at it night and day, just like I did when I was in therapy. I did three hours a week and then wrote dreams down and did kept a journal. And like, I mean, I'm a big one for like, don't half-ass do things, right? So yeah. if you're going to go into music, then go into music, which means you wake up and you start writing music. You know, I was listening to, um, what was it? Some documentary on the American band, The Eagles. And the guy was, uh, I think it was, I don't know, Glenn, Fly or Glenn, Glenn Fry or um, Creepy Don Henley. Boy, you should figure out why he really wrote Dirty mm-hmm. Laundry. It was pretty vile. 16-year-old dead hooker in his, or, sorry, 16-year-old uh, OD'd hooker in his uh, hotel room. Nasty stuff. Anyway, um, but yeah, they're talking about that they lived above the um, lawyers in love uh, guy. I can't remember his name. Jackson Brown, the guy who later beat up Daryl Hannah. I'm sorry that I know these things. I just do. And, you know, like, oh, he'd like work up and he'd play the same phrase like 20 times, 30 times. And then he'd write a little bit down and make another pot of tea. And then he'd just keep writing and keep writing. And this is what you do. You know, funny because people use this word like, well, that's, he's just obsessive about X, Y, and Z, right? It's like, I, you know, I don't know what the word obsessive is. But, you know, everything that's really great in this world comes out of because people are obsessed with it. People are obsessed with it. And Bohemian Rhapsody, they only stopped adding tracks because the tape ran completely clear and they couldn't add any more tracks. This is back before you could do this stuff on computers. And the attention to detail that's necessary for that kind of genius to, to flourish is, uh, of course, it's obsessive. You know, that, that boy, that guy who invented the polio vaccine was totally obsessed with beating polio. Yes. And I'm very glad that he was <laughs> because I like swimming in public pools when I was a kid, even now. So be obsessive. Surrender to your obsession and say, if I'm going to do this, I'm going to do it 150%. Because that's mostly what's needed to succeed. I mean, yeah, there's talent and and I get all of that. And I'm not saying that's inconsequential. But talent without work is just self-contempt because you know you have the ability, but you just won't work at it. And so you end up, your talent becomes an avenue for self-contempt. And a real sense of frustration and, and wasted opportunity. So there is talent, and, and that's not inconsequential. But the people who succeed in general, the people who succeed in general, it's only one thing you have to do, is you have to do one thing more than everyone else is willing to do. That's all you have to do to succeed. You just have to do one thing more than what everyone else is willing to do. It's been true of this show from the very beginning, that I do the topics that people are too chicken shit to do. They know they need to talk about these things. They know they need to talk about family voluntarism. They know they need to talk about the non-aggression principle when it comes to parenting. They know they need to talk about parenting. They know they need to talk about racial IQ differences. Everybody knows this. And the number of people I know in the public sphere who I know know this shit and don't fucking talk about it is ridiculous and contemptible. So 
why has my show succeeded? Because I'm willing to do what other people aren't willing to do. And I'm not willing to do it for shock value, and I'm not willing to do it for success. I mean, it would be a much more comfortable show in many ways if I hadn't done the things that are controversial to do. But it's I can't look at the camera. I can't look at, at the listenership. I, I can't write and, and go on people's show. I can't do any of that and say, oh, people got to have integrity. They got to be honest. They got to be courageous, and they got to tell the truth, and then conceal things that I know that are important that need to be talked about. I mean, I just, I can't do it. I mean, I would, I, I, it's not even tempting to do it. So when it comes to music, you just have to be willing to do what other people aren't willing to do. Now, musicians, a lot of them, pretty hedonistic lifestyle, right? It's very easy to slip into that haze of drugs and sex and rock and roll and waste a lot of time. So you just have to be the disciplined musician. That's what you have to be. You have to be the disciplined musician, the guy who gets up and says, I'm going to write. I sit down and write for three hours. I sit down and write for three hours. I sit down and write for three hours. I'm going to play my stuff in front of a live audience. I'm going to continually test it and change it and improve it until it's what people love. And then I'm just going to keep doing that. And I'm going to keep doing that. I'm going to keep doing that. And I'm not going to be defeated by setbacks. I'm not going to be defeated by failure. I'm just going to understand that there is no road in this world that is perfectly even. There are bumps and dips and valleys, and there are roads that are washed away, and there are bridges that are cracked and broken, and you just find a way across the river. You're just willing to do what other people aren't willing to do. Most people, when they hit resistance, they get sanded down, right? What is it? resistance? They get sanded down because they say, well, oh, I tried to do this, but then this happened, and this didn't work, and then this didn't happen, and this didn't work, and blah, 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 right? <laughs> and they just stop. Or what happens is their forward momentum gets arrested just slowly over time. Their forward momentum just gets arrested. Slow down a little bit more each time. Slow down a little bit. Oh, there's another resistance. Oh, this guy didn't return my call. Oh, this didn't work. Oh, I lost my work here. The computer crashed. Oh, this. And then they just low, slow down, like a slow motion sickness, and they just grind to a halt. And it's like, okay, then you've just failed. And what's happened is the baton has been passed to someone who says, Okay, so there's things in the way. Good. I like the fact that there are things in the way. Do you think I don't know what's happening to my stuff in social media? I know it's being suppressed. And I'm like, good. That's actually fine with me in many ways because it means that we're having an effect. What we're doing is having an effect. And it also means that other people are going to get slowed and stopped by that. And I'm sorry that this unfortunate and unjust stuff is happening. But that's the, I'm not going to stop. I'm like, okay, good. This was going to happen when we got closer to having an effect, when we got closer to having a real impact. So it's baked into the equation. It's built into the cost of doing business, so to speak. The cost of telling the truth is you're going to get a lot of resistance. And knowing that is a spur. The resistance makes me stronger. The resistance makes me more focused. The resistance makes me go faster and harder forward. And other people will get sanded down by that. And I'm telling you out this, if you're out there, don't get sanded down by it. Some of you will and some of you won't. If it's identified, good. But you need to just do what other people aren't willing to do. That's all that success fundamentally comes down to. Are you willing to stay up later? Are you willing to be vulnerable? Are you willing to pour heart, mind, and soul into what it is that you're doing? Are you willing to be wrong? Are you willing to be scorned at and jeered and attacked? And if you are, you'll succeed. And if you are stopped by those things, you shouldn't even try because then you'll have a big failure that you'll judge yourself by. And if you're not willing to go the distance, it's better not to even start the race because you just wear yourself out for nothing. And I'm saying that to you, Daniel, because if you want to be into music, music is only risky if you're lazy. 
Because anything you do long enough, you're going to get good at. You're going to get good at. And all you have to do is persist. You know, it's that old saying that success is 99% perspiration and only 1% inspiration. All you have to do is persist. And you will gather the skills that come from not giving up. You will gather the resources and the robustness and the resolution that comes from simply not giving up. And everything that's great in our life, from great technology to great music to great political theories to great philosophical arguments, are all the result of crazy, obsessive, I'm not giving up. It took me close to 30 years to come up with a working theory of secular ethics that has now stood the test of time. It took me 30 years of thinking about it. It took me even longer to come up with a functional and valid theory of free will. And I've got all the stuff written down in a book that I'm working on and so on. So you just have to be persistent. Now, why haven't other people come up with secular ethics? Either they don't think it's important, which of course it is, or they just gave up, or they just said, well, this answer is good enough for me, which is what I did with objectivism for quite a while. I remember reading about free will in The Psychology of Self-Esteem. I think it was in Nathaniel Brandon's book and thinking, oh, well, he's written about it. And so here's the answer. And I read it and I was like, no, that's not really, that's not really very satisfying. That's not really a really good answer. Okay, well, I guess I was hoping to read. And so you just, you just be persistent. And so I, I very clearly remember 2006, 12 years ago, I sat down and I had to pee. It's actually important that I had to pee. I sat down at a table and I was like, man, I got to pee. And I'm like, you know what? No, you don't get to pee until you solve this problem. You don't get to get up from this table until you solve this problem. And uh, that can be quite an incentive. <laughs> quite <a motivator. laughs> My eyeballs are turning yellow. I think I solved this problem. And if you just say, well, I'm, I'm not going to give up until I've given it everything I've got. And then if you've given it everything you've got, you know, like when I left theater school, I like I had a play and I had no money and I, I put ads up and, and I hired actors and I rented a theater and we rehearsed that play and, oh man, it was rough. I had to fire people who got really, I mean, they're actors, they're volatile as hell sometimes, right? I got really, got people screaming at me because I fired them because they were pretty bad. And somebody was screaming at me. I fired him because he was just a terrible actor. He was good in the audition, but just, and you just was bad. And I had to, I, I had to fire the guy and he's screaming at me and he was going to send me a bill for every single goddamn hour he worked on this stinking fucking play. And, you know, he's right in my face, red and screaming at me. I had to fire Another guy who was pretty bad, I was actually going to take the role myself, which I didn't really want to do. But instead, a friend of mine who I actually wrote the part based on agreed to take the role. And he was not an actor. He had no experience, but he was natural because I wrote the character based on him. So he was actually able to do a good job. And that play called Seduction was the adaptation of Turgenev's Fathers and Sons. It only ran for like a week because it's all I could do before I was going back to school. And a couple nights, it was just pure magic, pure magic, just the way everything went and the way everything played out. And I mean, it was all just wonderful, wonderful stuff. 
and I really, really enjoyed it. Didn't make a lot of money out of it, but I gave it everything I had as a producer, as a director. I was satisfied with what happened and I didn't want to do it again because I wanted to do something else. And you give it everything you've got and then you can walk away without regrets. It's the same thing in relationships. You, you communicate until you can't communicate anymore. You either break through, you break out. So I say to people, you've got problems with people in your life, sit down and talk with them. Get the lay of the land. Be honest, be open, be vulnerable, be willing to be rejected, to be cursed. And you will get the true value of the relationship. Because if you're vulnerable with someone in a relationship and they shit on you, that tells you all you need to know. So if you want to go into music, um, my advice is go into music. But don't fucking half go into music. Don't go in it to be a cover band. Don't go in it for the groupies or for the high of just performing and so on. Go into it knowing that it's a job. And it's a job with a hell of a lot of competition. And it's a job where the prize is so great that everybody wants it. It's like acting. The prize is so great. You get millions of dollars. You get fans. You get your pick and choice of projects. You get to work with the very best people in the world. Which means everybody wants it. How many people would like to do what I do? A lot. So why don't they? Come on. It's the internet. Take me on. Be better than me. That'd be fantastic. I'd love to come work for you. But they don't. Why? Because they don't want to do what I'm willing to do. That's the only barrier. It's nothing magic about it. So, oh, Steph, you're so eloquent and so on. Well, yeah, because I started writing when I was six years old. I started debating when I was eight years old. I was on a debate team. I was uh, in theater school where we did lots of improv and, and role plays. And I wrote and I wrote 35 plays and I've written hundreds of poems and I've written 12 books. And it's like, this doesn't come out of nowhere. Oh, he's got a talent. Yeah. Tell me all about the talent, please. Think I was this good when I started? I was this good when I started in 2006. Well, maybe not this good, but I was pretty good. But that's because I'd already been studying philosophy for 25 years. Doesn't come out of nowhere. So recognize it's going to be a haul. And success is simply a game of last man standing. That's all it is. It's simply a game of last man standing. Be willing to do what other people aren't. If they're willing to write for 10 hours a week, you write for 20 hours a week. Now, I remember there's this sticker or something you put on your fucking journal. And it says, so I haven't written a lot lately. So what? Neither has Shakespeare. And it's like, he's got the excuse of being 400 years dead, bro. Just get down and just write something. Just do it. Like all the people I know who were like, oh, you wrote a book, man. I've always wanted to write a book. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I want to write a book. You know, if you have to write a book, maybe you've got a chance emotionally if you feel like you have to. But if you just want to do it. Or people who are like, oh, you know, I was doing this for a certain amount of time, but now I think I'm just, I'm going to, I'm just going to write a book. It's like, are you now? Yeah. You know, I've been doing software for quite a while, but I think I'm just going to do tracheotomies and appendix operations now, you know, because I just feel like doing it. It's like, no, it's difficult and complicated stuff. And so go make music, go write music, go test music, and just do more than the band next door. And that's how you get to the stadium. And there's no other way to do it. So, and I, you hear these stories, uh, even like Aerosmith, 
you know, when, when Steve Tyler came along, yeah, creepy AF. But when Steve Tyler came along, he's like, man, you guys got to tighten it up. You got to get professional. You got to make it happen. You got to make it work. We got to start writing. We got to like, like, this is a job. This is a business. We got to be really good at all of this stuff. And then you get to the top and you get to make some money. Now, that doesn't mean you get to keep the money. If you look at someone like Pink Floyd, had an amazingly successful run of albums. Uh, I mean, all the way from Umuguma, was, which was a little freaky, but uh, all the way through uh, Animals and, and uh, The Dark Side of the Moon, of course, was a huge hit. It was on like the Billboard Top 100 for like, I don't know, two years or something like that. It's mental. And then they gave all this money or had a bunch of accountants and money managers run all their money. And then they basically blew all their money. The, the managers and the accountants, the same thing happened with Sting. His accountant stole his money. Same thing happened with Billy Joel, like 25 million of Billy Joel's money was stolen by people. So just because you get to make the money doesn't make, mean you get to keep the money. So be smart about all of that kind of stuff. But Pink Floyd, two million pounds in the 70s, that's a crap ton of money. I don't know what that would be like, like $20 million or something now. Yeah, lost two million pounds. That's why they had to write the wall. It's one of the reasons why they were kind of angry when they wrote the wall, because <laughs> they kind of needed to make some money, because they were uh, broke from uh, everybody pillaging them. Uh, left, right, and center. I think the same thing happened to the Eagles. I mean, the number of parasites around the creative industry is is huge. And you have to be aware of that, that great talent brings with it great predation, right? Whenever you have a big steaming pile of talent, the flies come to feast, so to speak. And you have to be aware of all of that because uh, the capacity to generate wealth generates exploitation and predation like you wouldn't believe unless you've actually experienced it. It's one of the reasons I love interviewing, but I find it tough to work with, with people outside, uh, well, the person I work with because... Uh, it is uh, it's a big challenge, and I think a lot of people are going to face that who've come up through this alternative media, the intellectual dark web, not an argument. <laughs> and so, yeah, if you're, if you're smart, you're willing to work harder than other people are, you're willing to go further than other people are, and you're willing to be smart about what you make, then you can make it, and it'll be a hell of a lot more satisfying than public relations. Yeah, thanks, Stefan. I really think that gave me some clarity. I feel like I was just kind of like apprehensive because I've seen examples on both sides of my life of people who are like, they they never really tried to go for their dreams and then they like regretted it. And then people who did try to go for their dreams, but then it didn't work out. And now they're like living a pretty mediocre life. So I'm just kind of like, trying to avoid No, but did they really try and go for me. their dreams? Did they? Yeah, that's that's like something I'm thinking about mm. now that you bring up that, that point. You know, yeah, like, like you they... probably heard this story I've told before very briefly about the guy I met at a business dinner whose brother was an actor in New York who was like in his mid-30s. He'd never quite made yes. it, and never quite failed. And he was just kind of chugging along but didn't have enough money to start a family and just was like lost in limbo. And that was a terrifying story. But, you know, I mean, in hindsight, thinking about it now, 30 years later after I heard the story, geez, maybe more. 30? Yeah, about 30 years. Well, the, was the guy spending all, all his time coming up with an incredible one-man show? Was he learning how to juggle? Was he, you know, like anything to, to get the role, anything to get the part? Was he uh, slimming down and working out to the point where he had abs so he could do topless scenes? Was he like, I don't know, like, was he doing absolutely everything possible to succeed? I mean, I look back at the show that I've done for the last 12 years. I don't know that I could have done more. I mean, I couldn't have done more shows physically possible. I mean, it's, 
to either produce or consume. And I don't think I could have been braver. I don't think I could have been more resolute. I don't think I could have been, I've had more integrity. So I'm very pleased with, with what I've done. And those people who, yeah, the people who don't try that hard and then claim that they failed, they tend not to blame themselves and they infect other people with paranoia about following their dreams. Yeah, I would tend to agree with you on that point after you know, that like pep talk you just gave me and everyone else who's out there trying to grind. Um, my other question kind of like relating to this topic uh, is, you know, like obviously because I listen to your show, I'm very passionate about like politics and, you know, um, spreading like correct ideology uh, through debate and open conversation. And I know currently the entertainment industry is kind of the exact opposite of that sort of atmosphere. So I was wondering like what your thoughts are on someone who kind of has like an ideology that doesn't really match up with, uh, it's not very accepted. Like you saw what they did to Kanye, like they just massacred him. Um, no, they didn't. So, no, they didn't. Now, I, let's I, not I, use I, that language, right? I mean, yeah. <laughs> they didn't massacre him. They, they bitched at him. I, uh, yeah, I just have like a bunch of friends in my social circles who just kind of were like dis disown Kanye, and I'm very low key about my politic politics. I wouldn't, I wouldn't I'm lead with that stuff, right? Because once you have some yeah. foothold, some traction in the industry, then I think you can be a little bit more, or maybe a lot more upfront with what you believe. But I wouldn't necessarily lead with that. Now I say this because my very first podcast was the stateless society and examination of alternatives. And, you know, I think the sixth or seventh podcast was personal stuff about my life and my family. So I kind of led with what was going on with me, but there were no gatekeepers, right? I'm, and it was, you know, there were no gatekeepers, so I didn't have to rely on anyone else to, to publish or to, to book what I was doing. So if you do need, if there are gatekeepers and you do need people's cooperation to get yourself going, then you might want to temper things down until you get bigger. On the other hand, if you go full tilt boogie with what you believe and you can self-publish and you can put your stuff out for sale somewhere and you can, right, then I would go that. I mean, if, if you if you have to go through assholes to get your work, your work's going to be shit because the shit's the only thing that goes through an asshole <laughs> fundamentally, right? Yeah. <laughs> so if, if, yeah, let me sort of revisit this, what I'm saying there. So, because, yeah, you can... You can hand out your music for free. You can ask for donations. You can hand out part of your music for free. You can sell the rest. You can, I mean, there's lots of different things that you can do. And then you don't have gatekeepers. And anything that you can do that's going to avoid gatekeepers, yeah, because right now, if a musician comes out, I mean, look at Joy, Joy Villa, right? She seems to have, like, I mean, she gained national attention just by wearing a MAGA dress, right? Mm -hmm. And so if you are playing woke music, so to speak, then <laughs> I think people will beat a path to your door. So yeah, forget that first bit about compromise. Yeah, forget it. Uh, <laughs> just have integrity, go full tilt boogie, and uh, you'll get your audience that way. But that means you're going to have to be more creative in how you get your stuff out. Yeah, I, I'm still kind of like conflicted on that. Because I mean, like, where's I, you know, we see where Joy Villa like got now, but where could have she been if she didn't say anything, you know, like you don't know if like opportunities were closed off to her, like she could have been working with, uh, 
top artists if it wasn't like for that statement uh, she decided yeah me. yeah yeah i mean you you uh, can talk yourself into and out of anything like that that's why you have to live with integrity because if you try and guide your life by consequentialism all you'll be is paralyzed yeah that's true that's right true. i mean right. oh well if i do this then that bad thing could happen if i talk about this and that bad oh you know if it wasn't if it wasn't for me talking about this topic well because I took on race and IQ, I don't get a TV show and, and, and you know, you can, t- or, you know, well, the reason I'm doing so successful is because I talked about race and I, I, I don't, you can go any, any, any way you want, but you simply talk about what matters to you, what's important and what is true. And when it comes to art, I guess I question whether you could even be a good artist if you're self-censoring because art, artistic creation for me is a lot to do with Practice and relaxation. So you practice and you practice and you practice. And then in the moment, you simply relax and create. And the people who are are the most creative I've always seen have had a lot of preparation and they're very relaxed in the moment. Uh, There's some great live sets of... So Queen, there's a sort of copycat Bohemian Rhapsody song called The Prophet Song written by Brian May, which comes from a dream that he had. And in it, there's kind of a semi-operatic piece, and it's not as flamboyant and creative as what's in Bohemian Rhapsody, but it's not bad. And they used to do this, I guess in the 70s, they used to do this live set of playing the Prophet song, which is a, I mean, other than White Man, is a hell of a nodule-busting song to sing and perform. But in the middle, Freddie Mercury would just stand on a stage, I don't know, like 30,000 people in the audience, sometimes even more, He'd just stand on the stage and he would sing or scat with a loop back. And it's amazing stuff. To me, I just, I find that jaw, jaw dropping. Just, he'd stand there with a microphone for like five minutes, seven minutes, sometimes even longer. And just, oh, like just harmonize with himself and play around vocally and so on. And uh, Rock in Rio Blues is also where he does a falsetto. It's, it's just different every night and uh, amazing stuff. He just stands over the microphone and just plays around. He's very relaxed when he does it. And every now and then he'll just do something kind of funny. Like he's a, because he's doing a round, he, he, at one point he just went into Frere Jaca. I think he was in Japan. And because he's... He's harmonizing with himself because of the loopback. It's just an amazing thing. Now, of course, he'd been singing since he was a little kid. I actually dated a woman who, who's, who was, whose friends, whose family was friends with Freddie Mercury's family and said that the guy was singing loud, like when he was a toddler, singing like crazy in, in the bathroom. And so he had been doing this stuff for, you know, by that point, I don't know. 25 years, 30 years, and so on, just harmonizing and playing around and so on. So he could go up and stand. So he had huge amounts of preparation, and then he's just kind of relaxed and having fun. And uh, sometimes when he's playing with the audience, he'll sort of sit down and say, all right, let's do a little Aretha Franklin, because he loved Aretha Franklin as a singer. And just sitting and engaging with the audience, but he'd been doing it for, for, of course, forever. And so that's sort of an example of a huge amount of preparation, and then just relaxing into creation. And that is a very powerful combination. A lot of people think creativity is like squeezing that last bit of toothpaste out of the tube. But if you're in that place, you're not being creative, you're straining. 
And creation is about preparation and relaxation. And so I guess the reason I'm talking about this, Daniel, is because if you're self-censoring, you can't be in that relaxed place. And if you can't be in that relaxed place, I don't know how you can create. So I guess I'm going to amend my play it safe at the beginning to say, don't, because that's being committed. You make some very good points, and I would have to agree with you. Um, luckily for me, I'm not a vocalist, so hopefully I don't have to write any lyrics uh, and just avoid interviews. <laughs> um, <laughs> Maybe, yeah. All right. Well, thanks, Amelia. Move on to the next call, but appreciate the call. Okay, up next we have Ricardo. Ricardo wrote in and said, I am an advocate for capitalism. However, there are multiple areas where I think no regulations are actually detrimental. What are the ethical and economical implications of a completely free market? Would the world be a better place with a basic economic safety net? Wouldn't a completely free market prevent the successful policies from being applied by a fair government? I.e. helping those in need get back on their feet so they can become productive again, which in turn would maximize meritocracy. That's from Ricardo. Hey, Ricardo. How you doing? Um, hi, Stefan. The problem, first of all, I think is the language that you're using. A basic economic safety net. And so if you take away a safety net, then by implication, that is a dangerous policy, right? Because we certainly would, you wouldn't want to learn how to be a trapeze artist and uh, operate without a safety net and so on, right? So what are ways in which a free society could provide a safety net to people? Well, first of all, what does a safety net even mean? And secondly, how could a free society provide those? What would you say? So the way I look at it is we want to get the maximum progress in society. So for wait, sheer luck, wait, sorry. I'm, I'm sorry to interrupt you when I just asked you, but that's, I'm not sure what that means. We want to get the maximum progress in society? I'm not sure what that means. Progress for some people is disaster for others. Like if you and I set up a competing restaurant where kind of only one of us is going to survive, then your success is my failure. I think we want to do good, not look at outcomes. So we want to respect property rights. We want to respect the non-aggression principle. I don't really care what happens from there. I don't know about – I think the result will be progress, but I don't think that we should aim – at maximum progress, which is impossible to measure in any objective sense. Well, I I know that you were about to say that because I've listened to other like a lot of your material, and I, I understand that. I think completely free society and com no government is the most ethical thing. I uh, that because that it's just complete freedom. It's like perfect freedom, but I just don't understand why we would do that if the outcome isn't better than uh, having a government that works or having policies that better the situation of people. So that's why I'm talking about maximum progress, because it's nice to have good medicine, it's nice to have technology, and we don't know if we would get that with a completely free society. Okay, so let's look at Europe at the moment. So the majority of people in Europe do not want mass immigration from the third world. 
Yeah, sure. And they have voted sometimes to try, like politicians have offered to stop that, right? Even Angela Merkel in Germany said, multiculturalism hasn't worked, integration isn't working. I'm going to solve this. I'm going to fix it. And people have voted in the UK for Brexit, which doesn't seem to be happening. So on what grounds can the people make the government follow their own will? The government has all the guns. The government has all the weapons. The government is in control of the legal system. So let's say the government starts doing something that you don't like. Let's say that you don't want the government to be able to print and control its own currency. What can you do? Yeah. Of course, there are downsides, but why is you? Why do people want to go to Europe? Why does Africa want to go to Europe? Because because of the welfare state. Yeah, I mean, because Europe is vastly more advanced, and because of the welfare state, yes, that's an incentive. No, no, it it's the welfare state. But, but don't you think uh, um, someone in a war-torn country thinks that's better to go into like uh, Germany? where the economy is a lot better. No, why because of the, it's because of the welfare state. Because the vast majority of migrants from the third world who come to Germany, let's say, the vast majority of them end up on welfare, seemingly permanently, and they go through other countries in order to get to wealth to Germany, which has one of the more generous welfare states. So they're not coming for economic opportunity. They're coming for free money, right? I mean, that, that we know so empirically. If, if we didn't have the welfare state, you would still get some people going to Europe and probably no one from Europe going to war-torn countries like, I don't know, Congo or whatever. That's because, that's because Europe is more advanced. Why is it more advanced? Because it, no, but what, it's got more They wouldn't go to Europe if they couldn't succeed. So somebody with an IQ of 85 would probably not go to Europe because there wouldn't be any job for that person because there are already people in Germany with an IQ of 85 and there aren't many jobs for people with an IQ of 85 or 80 or whatever, right? And so yeah. if you are going to come to a country and if people know the truth about your religion, if people know the truth about your culture, if people know the truth, then they'll be much less likely to hire you, much less likely to offer you various economic opportunities. You don't speak the language, you don't understand the culture, and you would be at great risk of a rational legal system actually prosecuting you for the crimes that you may end up committing. So I don't think okay. in the absence of a welfare state, you're going to have the same problem with mass migration. Okay, but don't you think that the reason why Europe is more advanced is because of the better organization and the, and the, the stable governments that he had for centuries and centuries that that's what africa doesn't have doesn't have a stable government doesn't have you know um like the crime is very high that doesn't have police so there, there can be no investment because there cannot be any safety in the return of the investment so the organization it's, it's helping, even though we know that the government is unbelievably corrupt and during the centuries has done hideous things. But don't you know that the existence of an organization is better than just basically anyone by themselves? For example, you talk about private police. 
Don't you think that people with different ideals will have different police fighting each other, creating militias and just uh, chaos? We had Wait, no okay, government. Dude, as- dude. Oh, it's <clears throat> so annoying when people do this. Just, just trying to give you the objective feedback. So I give you an argument and then you go off on some other tangent and you bring up like five other major points in a row without giving me a chance to give you feedback. That's not how debate works. If I make a point, you can make a counterpoint, but going off on some other tangent and then just bringing up issue after issue after issue is just a wall of noise. That's not how we can actually have a conversation about these matters. So with regards to Africa, well, one of the major problems in Africa is it's generally a low IQ population. These are just the basic facts, right? If you look at Germany and you look at Japan, they were bombed into oblivion in the Second World War. Within a couple of years after the war, they had rebuilt their societies. And so the problem is, particularly in sub-Saharan Africa, you've got a population with an average IQ in the 70s. You can't have a rational, free, empirical, empirically um, uh, free market society with that level of IQ, because there's very little capacity to defer gratification. There's a lot of tribalism. There's little capacity to understand and process vast abstractions like non-aggression principles, property rights, and so on. So it's not just that Europe has magically had these stable governments, for want of a better phrase, and Lord knows they haven't been particularly stable since the fall of the Roman Empire, but it's not just a matter of, well, in Europe there are these stable governments, which Africa mysteriously doesn't have. The reality is that Europeans were the Africans, according to some theories, who lost. The Africans who were pushed out of Africa and ended up having to wander into the northern wastelands and where the less intelligent people died off because there was brutal and bitter winters. And the progression and development of higher IQ societies in both Siberia and in Europe as a whole, which resulted in the East Asians and the Caucasians, was the result of unbelievable levels of suffering over tens of thousands of years, while life in Africa was relatively easy because there wasn't that harsh and brutal winter. And so it's not just a matter of, well, there are these stable governments and there are these not stable governments. It is a matter of very, very different societies based upon very, very different people. And so with an understanding about all of this, the idea that a free society would say, sure, that would be excellent. Let us bring in a million people from sub-Saharan Africa, like whether it's Japan or whether it's China or whether it's Europe and so on. I don't see that happening. The, The basic issue that we have is a lack of knowledge, a lack of understanding. And this idea that you're going to bring these, these cultures, these ethnicities into your country, and they're just going to magically work and integrate and everything's going to be better than if you didn't, well, that is a big challenge. And we have the example of America to see that, that in America, 400 years now, this was a forced integration uh, and it was slavery and it was immoral and it was wrong and all that. But 400 years later, I mean, there's still massive conflicts, uh, massive disparities in crime rates, massive disparities in income. And the average IQ of the African American doesn't seem to be able to move much past the mid-80s. And so we just need facts in order to be able to make these decisions. And right now, the collectivists, the leftists, one might say those hell-bent on destroying the West, are actively attacking people who bring basic scientific and biological facts to people's attention. And I want uh, people in Africa to have a great life. I want people in Europe to have a great life. 
And the best way we can do that is to actually talk about facts rather than fantasies. So with regards to private police, I don't know, what, why on earth would people pay private police who would end up in gun battles with other private police? I wouldn't want that. You wouldn't want that. So as customers, we would demand that that not be the way that they resolve disputes, right? I wouldn't want uh, people shooting randomly uh, in, in neighborhoods and, and trying to overtake each other. So uh, it would be sort of like saying, well, you know, why, why don't people just uh, bring uh, – no, forget that. Okay, so let's just say that you wouldn't want it and I wouldn't want it and therefore it would not be something that the market would provide, which is the sort of random gun battle scenario that you're talking about. Uh, with regards with um, the Africans, uh, isn't it possible that uh, their lower IQ caused the fact that they don't have a, let's say, somewhat stable organization or respect of the law and stuff like that? Well, no, because we, we know that from Hispanics in the United States, that the Hispanics, which have IQs in the high 80s, that uh, Jason Richwine has done this, uh, it was his thesis, which got him into some trouble for a courageous turn. And his thesis followed Hispanic IQ after the Hispanics came to America uh, for, I think, two to three, three generations, I believe. And his conclusion, or what he found, was that even after moving to America, and America was a society founded by some of the highest IQ people in human history. Like, let's be straight, but the founding fathers were almost, to a man, stone geniuses uh, in a wide variety of fields. And so you had a society founded by some of the most brilliant people in human history. You had Hispanics move into that society. And three generations later, despite all of the advantages in education and nutrition and opportunity and so on, well, the IQs hadn't really budged thus leading the conclusion that Jason Richwine came to, and please read his thesis, I'm paraphrasing, that he said that the low IQ in, his, in the Hispanic population was effectively permanent. So, no, it is not an environmental thing. No, no, I'm not talking about the, an environmental thing. I'm saying their IQ is what caused the fact that they don't have a good organization, which is the same in the U.S., because like, like the, the African-American population has less respect for the law and their um, the neighborhood are chaos. So maybe like the, a government or any form of organization is the result of a higher IQ. Because you can see Europe, America, uh, Japan, I don't know, China, they all had strong governments. And I am not advocating for a centralized government because I, re I want the government to be as lean as extreme as possible, but something that guarantees the respect of the law and the application of intelligent policies, I think is the, the basic that we need. And after that, it should be free. Is that well, but, but well, this is a wish list. It's not an argument. You know, you would say, I would like the government to be small, right? Well, the American yeah. government was founded as a very, very small government. It was tiny, tiny, tiny. There was no income tax. Uh, the government didn't control currency. There was no sales tax. There were a couple of tariffs on goods, and that's about it. And what happened? It didn't take more than two to three generations for America to the American government to break out of the bounds of the Constitution, 
to start meddling in the Middle East, to start, well, actually meddling in the Middle East started under Jefferson. And there was a giant civil war, and then there was conscription into the First World War. There was, of course, the Federal Reserve before the First World War. There was massive intervention into the economy uh, in the uh, 1920s. There was even more massive, downright communistic intervention into the economy in the 1930s. And then you had the Second World War, and then you had the Cold War, and then you had uh, massive interventions into the Middle East, the funding of jihadis, and then you had the invasion of Iraq. And I mean, this is a huge and brutal government that grew out of something that was tiny. So how are you going to stop it? How are you going to stop it from growing? Uh, of course, the centralization of power will always uh, yield corruption. And I think that's the battle. But I just don't see how uh, not, ha not having it at all would be better than what we got. because. But no, I don't no, see I don't how is not an argument. Okay. Like the fact this that you can't picture what a free society looks like is not an argument. That's like me putting my hands over my eyes in a game of hide and seek while standing in the middle of a well-lit room saying, la, 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 you can't see me. <laughs> it's like the fact that you can't okay. see it is not an well, argument. No and, and who cares whether you or I or anyone can see it? What matters is. Is it morally consistent? Is it good? Well, the non-aggression principle is good. Respect for property rights is good. And the consistent application of those means a society without a government, because the government, by its nature, violates the non-aggression principle, violates property rights. So okay. saying, well, Isn't I can't see what happens when we do good is not an argument. Is it good? Is it moral? Is it right? Is it consistent? Your the, the capacity to envision it is, is not relevant. But the 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 two principles that I vastly agree on the principle of non-aggression and the respect of property rights isn't that also a wish list? Because how are you gonna like? How can you see that happening? It, it cannot. It can never happen. It's just okay. Let's say tomorrow we have no government. I think just the the murders and the People destroying and stealing, and it's gonna uh, go through the roof. It, I I agree that it's ethical if people were amazingly virtuous, but it's, I, like, how can it be better than a government that's fair, even though with some corruption? Well, I think that if we get rid of the government, everything will be wonderful. You think that if we get rid of the government, everything will be terrible. Do you see how that's not an argument from either of us? Oh, okay. Um, I think good. Say, you think bad. Okay. <laughs> I like apples. You like orange. Oranges. I mean, these aren't arguments. The, the fear of consequences, you understand, is not an argument. Saying everything will be better, saying everything will be worse, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. What matters is... Are we consistent and are we philosophically in the right? Nobody can predict the consequences of freedom. Not you, not I, not anyone. So if you're just raising the ooga booga scare man of, well, it's the purge, it's mass murder, it's disaster, it's... You don't know. You have no idea what's going to happen when we're free. And you can say the same thing about everything. Well, you see, if we end slavery, we're all going to starve to death because nobody's going to pick any food. If we reduce illegal immigration, people are going to starve to death because food's going to get so expensive because we have to pay people more to pick it. 
if we get rid of the government, disaster will happen, <laughs> right? I mean, that's not arguments. Now, you can say you have a personal anxiety or fear about the end of government, and you can say that I, Ricardo, am very anxious about the end of government. I, 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 let's talk about that. That's an emotional, subjective experience. But saying that somehow you can see through the tunnel of time as to what happens in a free society is not an argument, and it also shows a distinct lack of self-knowledge. I don't think you even know that you just feel anxious about it, and you're imagining that this is some sort of objective judgment on the future. Okay, how, let's say tomorrow there is no government. How do you, are you going to stop all of the things that are inevitably going to happen? Isn't the government the reason, isn't the law the reason why there are so few murders? So few murders, I'm not sure what you mean. Have you not seen so American I'm... foreign policy for the past 60 years, which has resulted in some estimates say 20 million people killed? What are you talking about? No murders. I mean, it in, is government. In, in, in governments kill their own citizens at the rate of a quarter of a billion dollars, a quarter of a billion people every hundred years. Have you not heard of communism? Have you not heard of, of socialism? Have you not seen what's going on in Venezuela? You think governments prevent murder? Governments are the greatest enactors of murder in human history. Yeah. I, I'm not talking when it goes wrong. I'm not talking when when it, it goes wrong. Dictatorship, dictatorship. Talking like the governments that have let progress happen. Yeah, like and I mean, uh, if you look in England, immigration policy has directly resulted in the mass torture and rape of tens of thousands of little white British girls. But we need yeah, a government, yeah, no, you see, no, because no, otherwise no. there might be rapists. But but how can you how can you think that the the reason why we are so advanced in the West is not because of the presence of some form of um, organization governments and or, or anything of the, this manner? Because the West uh, has how, progressed because it's had the smallest government, and so yeah, that's yeah. the reality. And so, if you want to look empirically, smaller governments equal more progress. Therefore, no government equals the most progress. You know, smaller cancer equals more health. Therefore, no cancer equals the most possible health relative to cancer. I agree. I agree that the smaller governments are better than the bigger government because the accumulation of power is detrimental and corrupting. I just don't think that no government would be better because there wouldn't be, for example, the, the, first, the example of the police. If I want some... Um, uh, something, some policies or some aspect in the world to be respected, and some other group of people or one person, whatever, wants otherwise. This is where I think the the clash of two polices. Okay, happen. so give me give me an example. Uh, there is a dispute on uh, uh, private property with my neighbor. Um, I think this square meter of land is mine. He thinks otherwise. How do you settle that? Wait, we have to have wars and mass immigration and massive national debt and the destruction of children's minds through endless indoctrination. We have to have all of these massive disasters, the destruction of the family, single motherhood, the, the war on drugs. We have to have all of this. 
because you can't figure out how two neighbors might resolve the dispute over a square meter of land? Really? That's a simple example. That example uh, give me a good example a... then. Don't give me a simple example. I'm not a okay. simple man. Give me a good example. Let's say um, someone inherits land and I think a land of one trillion meters and another guy thinks it's, it's his. Now uh, they're ready to use guns and there is uh, the whole family, like 100 people, um, fighting each other. And wait, wait, hang on. No, no. You, you, now we're 100 people fighting each other? Okay. Let, so let's say that you and I are brothers. And yeah. our father gives me the land, but you think the father gives should have given you the land, or you think that the real intention of the will was to give you the land. So you and I are in a dispute over land. Is that is that what you mean? Yeah. Okay, okay. So, Ricardo, what happens now if this occurs? That I will use force in order to get my land. Right now, you would use force to get your land? I will occupy the land and it will escalate. Really? You, you wouldn't go to the courts down. at all? No? Uh, right now with the government, yes, I will. Okay, see, that's why I'm talking about right now. That's why I use the phrase right now repeatedly. So, right now... You would go to the court system, right? Yes. Now, have you ever tried to use the court system to effect complex um, property right arbitration? No, I just didn't Have you ever known anyone who's tried to use the existing government court system to arbitrate complex property disputes? Uh, yeah, but I don't know the details. Okay. Do you know if that person was happy and satisfied with the efficiency and effectiveness of the government court system in arbitrating complex property disputes. Okay, so I have um, relatives that are in the court system, and they all say it's slow, it's inefficient, it's uh, dreadful, and I know, I know about this. Okay, but so the existing way lie. of arbitrating that dispute is terrible. It will take you yes. years and years and years and hundreds of thousands of dollars or more to try and maybe get some kind of resolution. Yes. Okay, so that's terrible, right? And particularly because it means that poor people or people who are middle class have effectively no access to arbitration. Yeah, they, uh, yes, there's a high bar. Okay, so what's, what exists is terrible, right? Mm. Is that fair but, to say? Sure, but isn't that better than nothing? What, what do you mean nothing? Isn't that better than... Oh, so your argument is if the government doesn't provide it, then it can't possibly be provided by anyone. But you cannot have it free because... Uh, sorry, you cannot have it private because there is going to be interests uh, from, uh, from different sides. And so the, what the government should be is disinterest a disinterested party that wants fairness over two people that have their own interests. Why would and the government be disinterested? Is the government not composed of people who are self-interested? Uh, yeah, there's going to be interest, but they don't care about who gets the land. It's just the following of the laws. The government doesn't care who gets the land. And the lawyers who run the system don't care how much they get to bill or how long it takes, right? 
Well, yeah, because they're private, so they want to get the most profit. Now, you do, so of course, the government often does care who gets the land, uh, and we know that because sometimes people donate money to the government or help particular politicians out in return for favorable concessions from the government in terms of property rights. We know that because there was the Clinton Foundation where people got like Bill and Hillary Clinton got hundreds of thousands of dollars, sometimes up to three quarters of a million dollars for making half hour speeches to people who wish to gain particular advantage from the State Department. And lo and behold, I guess their speaking skills and abilities just crumbled right after Hillary left office to the point where she couldn't get five bucks to bring you a latte at Starbucks. So the idea that the government is just some neutral arbiter uh, is, is false. And of course, the whole point is that because it's a monopoly process to a large degree, the lawyers set it up to the point where they can ensure maximum billability rather than that which is efficient to people. That's one aspect. The other thing, too, is that where you say it's impossible for it to be done privately, I mean, I'm a little surprised, I suppose, that you would say that, because I don't know if you've ever researched this or looked it up, but there are already thousands and thousands of private arbitration services in most Western countries, and they work very well. And they're there because the government court system is inaccessible and so inefficient that very few but the most powerful can use it. So, yeah, there already are these private arbitration systems. Now, in terms of how it works in a totally free society, well, no contract would be considered valid unless it contained within it an agreement that you would abide by a third-party arbitration in the event of disagreement. So if our father left land let's say, uh, to me or to you or whoever, there was some dispute over the land that he left. Well, embedded in that contract in a free society would be, and we see this all the time, you you see this, um, like if you go skiing, then you see when you're taking a pee, you see like the list of things about skiing. And it says, you know, if you have any disagreements, we agree that we're going to be judged by this set of laws and, and so on, right? And so when you have any kind of enforceable contract in a free society, in that enforced contract, It would say, well, if Ricardo and Steph have a disagreement about the interpretation of this will, they both agree to abide by the decision of this ABC arbitration company or whoever it is. And if ABC arbitration company is not available, they'd be like, I don't know, five in in descending order of preference uh, for whatever. Some go out of business or who knows what, right? And so we would agree to do that. And the only way we would be able to take occupation, in other words, the only way that our claim to the land would be considered legitimate by any arbitration organization would be if we obeyed the stipulation set forth in the will created by our father. Now, if we just said, well, I'm going to take the land anyway, and to hell with all of this, okay, well, then economic ostracism kicks in. Now, economic ostracism occurs when your banks say, okay, here's your money in a bag on your doorstep. We don't want to do business with any, with you anymore. And the electricity company says, oh, you break contracts arbitrarily. Well, you're now a threat to society. We don't want to have anything to do with you. We're turning off your electricity and we're turning off your water. And oh, by the way, you can't use the roads anymore. So good luck getting around. And the bus company won't take you and the airplane company won't take you. And economic ostracism kicks in to the point where you either begin to conform again to society's reasonable expectations, or you have to abandon society completely and go live on a mountaintop in Tibet somewhere, in which case, who cares what you're doing because you're no longer affecting the society that you live in. Economic ostracism is an incredibly powerful tool. We also know that because it's what the left uses right now 
as an extrajudicial attack upon people whom they disagree with, right? They try to get them fired. They try to destroy their reputation. They try to destroy their source of income. It happens regularly. They will phone people up and say, did you know that you're employing this terrible person who says all these terrible things? And they try to enact economic ostracism. And it's very, very effective. And uh, I've heard this from people in Europe who say, even if I'm not going to run afoul of very murky hate speech laws, I also might get fired. I might not get a job and so on. And this is one reason why Lindsay Shepard is, I think, suing Wilfrid Laurier University, right? She's the TA who showed the video of Jordan Peterson. Because if you have scandal around you, and if you've been censured, or if you've had any problems with the administration, it's much less likely that you're going to be able to get some kind of job. So economic ostracism is incredibly powerful. And it's how society should punish people who don't conform to basic contract norms. And this is how things would work and you'd have an appeal process and you know all of the kind of safeguards but yeah if you were found to be guilty then you would be persona non grata or an unperson with regards to economic cooperation can't even buy groceries can't right i mean people have to want to do business with you in order for you to survive in a modern economy in a modern society in any society really and especially if you have kids too i mean what if the doctors don't want to see you if you've broken like it's just not worth it so there's so many ways that society can enforce basic contract norms or basic legal norms without requiring the always disastrous and always malignant creation of a state. Okay. Uh, that makes a lot of sense and it does... Um, I can see how it can work out. However, you want to eliminate um, authoritative laws like the government laws in favor of normative laws. So. Um, people judging you or um, ostracism, economic ostracism, and you think that uh, the, the the social uh, judgment is stronger and more reliable and less corrupt than the government judgment? Because what if everyone just hate? I don't know. Let's say hates black people or something like that no one will serve you just because they hate Oh, you. you mean like if people really start disliking white males and won't hire them and it becomes economically very difficult, if not downright impossible to hire white males? Just You mean something like that? Like if there's a kind of bigotry in the marketplace where white males aren't going to be hired? Or maybe let's say you're an East Asian and you want to get into college. And yeah, the colleges it. discriminate against you because you're East Asian and they want to equalize their numbers relative to Hispanics and blacks. Do you mean that kind of stuff? See, that's already happening. So your ooga booga yeah, of what about racism, well, that's already happening. That's actually already encoded in legal standards at the moment. Or what if there's some kind of situation where you can be accused for crime and you don't even get to face your accuser and you can suffer enormously negative mm -hmm. consequences from it? Well, that was Title IX and that was the shadow of accusations of sexual misconduct that hung over males in colleges for, for many, many years until recently. So this idea that, well, what if these bad things, well, they're already happening. And so I, I'll take my chances as, as they go forward. Yeah. Okay. So the basic argument is that since um, concentration of power or government, it will undeniably and inevitably become corrupt. You want to remove it. Okay. So yeah, because I, I because it, corruption, the only cure for corruption is competition, because corruption yeah. is expensive, right? I mean, if I am yeah, of course, of course. stealing 
from let, let's say I'm, I'm I'm some employee and I'm stealing from the store. Well, the store has to raise its prices to cover that, and so they have a strong incentive to find the thief and to deal with it. And so corruption is very expensive, right? And so yeah. there's no cure for corruption when you have a coerced monopoly, an enforced monopoly. There is a cure for corruption in the free market. It's called competition, which is you have to root out and deal with corruption because you can't force your customers to buy your services. Now, the government can force you to pay for court services, even if you're never going to end up using them. But arbitration companies can't force you to pay for their services, which means they have to be um, clean. They have to be cheap. They have to be effective. They have to be efficient. And finally, for the first time in human history, the poor and the lower middle classes could actually get access to effective arbitration. And that's something really to be wished. Okay, so just for my sanity, would you think that a perfect government, theoretically, so an organization that uh, sets disputes, protects contracts, and doesn't have corruption, would be better than no government at all? Okay, can you define for me what would be moral slavery? No, slavery isn't moral. And the government violates the non-aggression principle by its definition. And so when you're saying a perfect government, you basically are saying moral slavery. And you might as well say to me, well, how much will you pay me for a square circle? It's like, well, such a thing doesn't exist by definition. And therefore, when you talk about a perfect government, you're talking about a moral government, a perfectly moral government whose existence immediately violates property rights and the non-aggression principle, and therefore it is an immoral entity in its foundation. So you're proposing uh, a contradiction which I can't address. Yeah, no, no, I agree. So there cannot be any government without the violation of the um, non-aggression principle. That is correct. Okay. Um, because governments force okay. you to pay and then forcibly prevent competition in various areas. And so they can't be moral entities. It's like saying right. loving rape. Like it's just one of these justifiable theft, you know? <laughs> you know what I mean? Like you can't, uh, you, you can't jam these concepts together and, and have them stay comprehensible. Okay. So I fully understand perspective. But could you enlighten me on, for example, how would food regulation work? How would... Uh, construction regulation work and also to get back to the safety net what I meant is um, we have a distribution of IQ and talents okay with by giving the opportunities to the one that deserved is would be better than just randomly having people that can access the education because that there, there is a bigger uh, randomness uh, element that would stifle progress. So yeah, that's three questions. I'm, you mean education? Yeah, ed education. Um, if it's uh, if it's hard to access, you will only get people that are basically rich or have, were born in favorable conditions to attend college. Do you so, feel that uh, people are being educated in college at the moment? I'm talking about the arts in particular. Do you think they're being educated or do you think they're being indoctrinated? I think they're being uh, scammed. <laughs> right. So and are you saying that you wish for this scam to continue? 
Yeah, but then you're dumb because you went to uh, to lesbian dancing. And, for example, that's why I wanted to talk about the college experience at first. I have had better conversation about politics and whatnot with my department of data science, like in a pub on a, with a beer, than with people in politics degrees or so, uh, sociology degrees. It was absolutely impossible to communicate because everything was labeled as you know the drill racist and homophobic and no logic no science at all it's like they're trying to avoid it and everything is based on emotion and super arbitrary concepts so So, yeah so education particularly higher education in the west at the moment is terrible so what do we have to lose no, but but if let's say someone is a genius in data science, but is absolutely atrocious in uh, uh, having connection or uh, was born poor and whatever, that we, we lost that person. It's it's like the Formula One. You know Wait, why? Why would that person? I'm sorry. If someone is a genius, why would we lose that person? What What do you mean? Let's say, for example, you. Um, you told about us about your experience, right? That you, you were very disadvantaged and then you um, had success in life. But what if they, like this person is a genius in data science, but it's, it's very bad that everything that concerns life and like that's his only skill, but it will never get to that point. So we lost someone that could have made a big progress. And this... No, I'm, I'm sorry. Let, let me ask you something, Ricardo. Have you ever run a business and hired people? Um, I know about my dad's business. Uh, no, but have you ever... Have you ever run a business and hired people? The responsibility was never on me. I just know some about it. Well, was your dad looking for talented people all the time? Um, He was looking for... Um, Probably honest and easy to teach and not dumb people. Yeah, he was looking for talented people all the time. And if there's someone who's a genius who can provide value, then that person will be hired because businesses like to make money. And so if someone who is a genius and can make something much more efficient or much faster or much better, you'll hire that person. I mean, it's the businesses that want this kind of talent and they're always on the lookout. For talent, you know, there's tons of rappers and there's tons of musicians and tons of actors who come from dirt poor backgrounds. But people yeah. are always looking for talented, charismatic, attractive people to make music, to to make movies with, and so on. Right? Sure, sure. So people are always looking for talent, and you don't you don't need to go to school. To be talented, you don't need to be go to school to be worthwhile. If somebody's brilliant in computers, then what they're going to do is they're going to beg, borrow, or buy a computer, and they're going to take it apart. They're going to figure out how it works. They're going to learn how to program it. They're going to—I mean, I know all of this because that's what I did. Yeah. And I came from a dirt poor background and ended up being the chief technical officer on a software company that I co-founded and grew to a fairly significant size. Nobody ever said, "Well, where's your computer science degree?" I started coding when I was 11. So there's my computer science degree, bitches, not you, (laughs) right? So they don't, like, nobody cares. 
if you can make money, if you can build stuff that people wanted, the code that I wrote ended up being sold for a million dollars a pop at times. So, yeah, I was was valuable. And investors saw it, and uh, the uh, the person that we ended up hiring as the chief executive officer saw it, and the board saw it, and and so on, right? Like after I left, uh, yeah. they were begging me to come back just for three days a week for one hundred and fifty thousand dollars a year. Said no because I ended up writing books, which I'm very glad I did. But I didn't get educated in computer science. I taught myself and uh, did very very well. I mean, you say, well, Steve Ga- Steve Jobs, Bill Gates, these people all dropped out of college. What the hell? I mean, they didn't want to go to college, right? They wanted to start their businesses and get going. Yeah, what, so, what the hell does college so, and education and this have to do with it, right? With increased um, competition with other governments, this would even be more prominent. Okay, so just about the... For example, this is something that I cannot ever explain with a completely free society. Um, go, um, food regulation pollution or uh, construction because pollution I'm sorry food regulation that, and what uh, food regulation or uh, uh, pollution or um, construction regulation because th- these three have something in common which is um, the bad aspects of it will only will only manifest after a lot of time so if someone builds you a house without any code and no government rules and stuff like that, they will make the most profit possible, right? And that he doesn't care if it's unstable and after 15 years, it will collapse on your head. So this is something that I cannot, like, I don't, I don't see how it could work in uh, without regulation. Okay, that's fair. That's a fair question, Ricardo. So... Let me ask you this. So let's say I'm selling you a house and you're concerned that it's going to collapse because I use cheap materials. What would you want me to do to put your mind at ease? I would like to to have some experts that don't have any interest in uh, – they don't have a, um, a monetary interest in the, being, the material being cheap and stuff like that to – um, see the house and run some tests and tell me, yes, this is this was done. Right. So uh, there would be a third party that we would both agree yeah. on who would be independent of the contractor who would review and inspect the house to ensure that it was built with quality materials. That's certainly one option. Look at that. We just solved the whole issue, right? And if the house broke down against the judgment of that home inspector, then the home inspection company would pay for it to be repaired, right? Yeah. So there okay. we go. There's another option too, uh, the- which is that you would you would buy or you would have included a warranty. So the warranty would be for like 25 years for structural. You know, this happens with cars already 100,000 kilometers yeah. or miles. And, you know, you've got one for the powertrain. You've got one for the, 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 um, the, the paint or, you know, whatever it is, right? And so you would have warranties and you would buy those warranties or those warranties would be guaranteed by the company who built the house. And that way, if they built cheaply, they would end up paying for the repair, which is more expensive than building well, right? So there's another way to solve the problem. Okay, so you, you're saying that instead of the government doing that, the will be private. So um, What does the government do right now? Let's say that... 
the government has given a license to some company and that company still builds fairly badly. Okay, then you have to face the daunting task of trying to prove your issue in the government court, which is going to take you years and tens or hundreds of thousands of dollars and be generally inaccessible to the average person. So right now, it doesn't work. Here in freedom, there's a chance it could work, right? Mm. See, you have to start thinking more like you're a customer, right? Which is, okay, I want clean food, right? And so how do you get clean food? Well, first of all, grocery stores guarantee clean food. And if they don't provide you clean food, in other words, let's say you get sick with something, then they say, okay, we'll pay you half a million dollars if you get sick. Or, you know, and it's verified that it was our food that made you sick. And just, you just have guarantees. You just have money put in escrow to pay out to people who you violate. Because it strikes me as kind of weird that people say, well, what about food safety and food effectiveness and food nutritional value in the absence of the government? It's like, you know, the government food pyramid is just bought out by the farmers who are subsidized through force by the taxpayers, right? The farmers want to sell a lot of wheat to some farmer. And so what do you get? You get bread at the top of the food pyramid, right? Or, you know, it's just a bunch of garbage. And people end up following these diets that are pretty bad for them. And they end up feeling stupid and lethargic in the middle of the afternoon because they've overloaded on carbs because that's what the government told them was really, really great. And fat is really, really bad. Turns out fat is actually kind of good and bacon will kill you and eggs are yeah. terrible. And that turns out that bacon and eggs are actually pretty good for you. And that's carbs are the problem. So and it turns out, oh, well, we're going to raise taxes on sugar. And what that means is now everybody uses high fructose corn syrup, which is basically like arsenic for your brain. And so this idea that somehow we're kept safe by government and we're going to face this wild west without the government, no, it'll just be more effective and efficient. And if a reputation, if a, if a restaurant gets a reputation for putting out soup that makes people sick, well, they've just destroyed the value of their business now, haven't they? So they'd have insurance against putting out food that was bad. So the insurance company would pay for the medical bills of someone they poisoned. And the insurance company would say, okay, you have to do this, this, and this, and this, and this to get your insurance. And we're going to send send in inspectors randomly to go and make sure that you have complied to keep your food clean. Uh, otherwise, we're not going to insure you because it's no good, right? And then you don't get that little stamp on the front of your restaurant saying this restaurant is insured by ABC non-contamination company or something like that. Uh, and then, you know, it's eat at your own risk, right? So there's so many different ways to solve these problems, right? Okay. So last question. Um, let me let me give okay, sorry. Let me just give you. I'm sorry to interrupt, Ricardo. Let me just give you one other brief one. I got this question the other day from uh, the son of a friend of mine, and he said, "Well, what about worker safety?" And that's an interesting one. Well, first of all, worker safety was improving long before the government got involved. What happens is the free market is making everything better. Then the government jumps on and says, "Hey, look, we saved you." So, with with regards to worker safety. What you want to do to make workers as safe as possible is to create as much demand as possible for the workers, right? As much demand for the workers as possible so the workers get to pick and choose. Now, workers generally want to work in the safest area. But the funny thing is, and there's lots of other considerations, but here's one that I was talking about with him that I thought was worth repeating, which is this. So let's say in the name of worker safety, you end up putting in a huge bunch of regulations and controls and requirements and so on that basically drives manufacturing jobs overseas. What happens then? Well, the interesting thing is that the workers who now no longer have jobs, they become unemployed. 
And what happens to unemployed people? Well, they get depressed. They will often gain weight. They may get diabetes. They might shoot themselves. They might get addicted to alcohol. They might get addicted to drugs. They might get, they might smoke more or pick up smoking because they're so bored. They might start to engage in dangerous activities because they're so bored and hopeless and understimulated. They may end up beating up their wives out of frustrated and impotent rage. And then they get thrown in jail where they get beaten up or raped. And so this idea, well, we'll just keep people safe by passing a massive number of regulations is like, well, no, you're not keeping them safe because you're kicking them out of work. And unemployment is kind of like an environmental toxin for a lot of people. There is no yeah. magic wand that makes everything wonderful and safe. Yeah, I can see that. And I've seen this somewhat firsthand with some people. And, I, so, you know, some people like the danger. Some people like yeah. the danger. Some people, you know, it's like that turtle from Finding Nemo. You got serious thrill issues, dude. You know, some people, they love working as lumberjacks and, and hacking down trees with giant chainsaws. They love working on power lines. They just love that thrill. And they also like the extra pay. Like we had a caller called in some time back ago. He loved working on higher power, high power, high power lines. Got a huge amount of pay. Loved the excitement. Loved the thrill. I mean, there are people who want to run into burning buildings. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, I want to yeah. be a firefighter. I want to run into a burning building. There are SWAT teams. There are cops who go undercover and drive. There are people who just love that kind of thrill, and, and they're well paid for it. I, am I going to say, no, you can't, right? There are, there are people who play football. People who play football. I mean, the number of people I've talked to over my life who were like, Oh, yeah, you know, I, I, I got to college on a football scholarship, and then I got squished sideways by someone half the size of a Maltese bull, and basically my toe, my, my toe and knee cartilage squirted out of my nose, and I've been walking with a limp ever since. It's like, yeah, it's a tough game. <laughs> it's a brutal game. Yeah. Try Australian rules, fug, rug, Australian rules rugby, which is basically no rules rugby, and they don't even have padding or helmets because they're Australians. Looking forward to see you again, mate. Yeah. But uh, yeah, football I mean, people players, take people yeah. take huge risks. I mean, if you look at someone like Michael, or people like Michael Jackson and Prince, Michael Jackson ended up with basically deformed feet and and um, huge body dysmorphia and and anorexia and constant pain and you know from from so much dancing, and he ended up on these these um, he couldn't sleep and I don't know what some horse tranquilizers was like he was given some god awful stuff that ended up killing him. Look at uh, Prince. Prince had incredible hip pain from years and years of doing these crazy dances on stage. And yeah, he also ended up, what was it, fentanyl or something like that he was addicted to. And so, I don't know. It's I'm not one to say, you know, I mean, I'm sure that for Prince and for Michael Jackson, performing in their prime was an incredible high. And so they ended up broken down uh, people addicted to painkillers, which ended up killing them. I'm sorry about all of that, but... I got to tell you, who hasn't fantasized about shredding an axe uh, and uh, singing at the top of your lungs in a very high falsetto in front of 20,000 or 50,000 or 100,000 screaming fans? Is it worth yeah. it? I don't know. Some days yeah. I can see that. Some days I can't. But obviously, they thought so to some degree. Mm. Where's their worker safety, right? I mean, people cheer that stuff. Yeah. Um, um, well, the last question. Um, uh, I've I've always been interested in like you know finding the truth and science and 
Uh, my IQ is around 115. I tested many times, men's and stuff. 115 is not a genius. It's just a normal person smart IQ, right? So how, why is it that there's so few people that I can have an honest, scientific, uninterested conversation that tries to lead to the truth? For example, we had this conversation, right? We both were prepared to concede something, of course, more on my part because I'm less knowledgeable than you. But we were we wanted to find some truth. We wanted to have like logical, fact-based conversation. At least this was the intent, and I think we did. But why is it so hard to find people like that? Because I'm getting alienated. I, I can have a conversation at university. I find so many people where if I even try to bring up anything logical, but even slightly controversial, that's it. It's done. Conversation is over. Well, you're so, probably not going to find many very bright people in college these days. Uh, it's just, I mean, we know that the net in college has been thrown very wide. Lots of people are getting in, and so everything get, gets dumbed down. And the really great professors, with the exception of everyone who appears on this program, end up getting kind of frustrated and, you know, maybe ending up doing something else with their life. But the other yeah. thing too, Ricardo, is you've got to focus on principles. If you focus on principles, you'll be able to chat with a lot of people. <laughs> and if you focus on consequences and fear-mongering and, you know, like some of the stuff that happened in the first part of our conversation, then you're going to be annoying and alienating yeah. to people. So if you just keep focusing on principles, then you can have very productive conversations with people. And if you just say, well, do you say to people, do you think that it's better to use reason or force to resolve human disputes? People are going to say reason for the most part. Do you think that initiating the use of force to get your way is ever moral? Well, probably people are going to say no. And once you get them to agree on principles, then you can begin to use those principles to widen the gap and bring some light into their dank, state-generated black hole of ignorance and propaganda. But start with principles, and you'll end up with much more positive conversations. If you start with the general goo of consequences and fantasy and so on, then it's not going to be very good. You've you got to find where your areas of agreement are and then widen it from there. That's what I did in this conversation, and that would be my suggestion about how to have better conversations with people. Yeah, I should be more zen about it and just uh, try to introspect and see if my uh, opinions are actually very principled or if I'm victim of some cognitive bias or something like that. But I'm telling you, there are so many people that you it's so hard to approach because they're so opinionated and so wrong. And they don't care about the truth at all. Good. Well, and, don't talk to those people. Yeah, which are like 50%. Wow. You're actually in a pretty good environment if only 50% of the people aren't worth talking to you. That's that's pretty good. So, yeah, focus uh, <laughs> focus on uh, on the people you can talk to and life's too short for those who don't. All right. Well, thanks for the call, Ricardo. It was a great right, deal thanks. of fun. And uh, I'll move on to the next call. Thanks. All right, bye. Thanks. All right. Up next, we have Ali. He wrote in and said... I've been listening to your show for more than a year, and it has been a life-changing experience for me. Listening to people call into your shows and talk about their struggles, it always seems those struggles have something to do with their childhood, but apparently that is not the case for me. I am an immigrant from a Muslim country in the United States, and I did not have a particularly traumatizing childhood. However, I have a very hard time negotiating on my behalf with the people who are higher than me in the hierarchy of authority wherever I am at. 
And as a particular example of this lack of negotiation skills, I find it very difficult and anxiety-triggering to talk to females. My ACE score was very low, and I cannot understand where this problem comes from. My question is, how come that with such a low ACE score, I still have such a tremendous difficulty negotiating on my behalf and also approaching women? And also, how can someone like me gain such life-transforming skills? That's from Ali. Hey, Ali. How are you doing tonight? Hi, Stefan. Uh, I'm good. Thank you for having me. Oh, it's my it's pleasure. That's a very interesting show. question, and I appreciate you uh, you calling in about it. It's very interesting. Yes, absolutely. I was just listening to my own question. I, I just, again, uh, I I noticed this anxiety and triggering anxiety. And and that's that's true that that's what what happens to me but but i i hate i i hate this uh, this word anxiety and triggering anxiety it just reminds me of i know like uh, trigger warnings and safe space and cry <laughs> you, you feel like a I'm snowflake like, oh, right but i, I mean anxiety exactly. can be I'm very just, like, real i helpful. hate that yeah yeah no i i get that i get that for sure it is one of the words that that men in particular may dread a little bit more because it feels, you know, kind of emasculating. Absolutely. Yes, exactly. Wait, yeah, are you yeah. saying you're a macho Muslim guy? I've never heard of that before in my life. <laughs> what is macho? Macho is, uh, you know, kind of chest-thumping, got to be the man kind of thing. <laughs> well, uh, I'm not, I, I don't think that I will call myself that. I, I would love to be one of those, but I'm not. Oh, that's the aspiration. Okay, got it. <laughs> now, tell me a little bit about, I mean, we, we have your... Adverse Childhood Experience Score, and I'll just mention these, if that's all right. Uh, no, so sure. you have uh, a two, which right. is not too bad, but I'm not sure they're all equally weighted because you have molestation, sex, or rape, and no family love or support. Now, with regards to spanking and discipline, yes, five to six times a year, bare hand, mostly by my brother, occasionally my parents. That's not a configuration I've seen before. But um, <laughs> tell me a little bit about what happened in your childhood. We'll talk about some of the negatives before we get to the positives. In particular, this molestation, sex and rape. Yes. And no family absolutely. level support. Again, like, let, let's start from this one, which is sensitive. Um, the, the molestation just happened just once. And I like I, I guess I was like seven or eight, I was uh, out with my with my brother at the mall. And I remember a man just molested me and uh, I just like uh, kind of like just like got away. And uh, th that was it. And when we were coming back home, which was like uh, kind of far away from the from the mall, uh, when I was almost like at, uh, at the door of our house, I just saw the guy like following me. And that just like uh, sent a shiver uh, down my spine. And then uh, that was it. That, that, that's all I had. But how did he? Just, uh, how did he molest you? At, was it at the mall? In the in the just, washroom? Yeah, or? at the mall, just like my backside. That's it. No, 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 nothing much. Because just uh, at the like a uh, crowdiness of the whole like mall, it, it took advantage. Did he just that's grab all. your butt? Is that right? That's yeah. That's that's uh, that's what happened. Okay. Okay. And, got it. Now, oh, sorry. When when you saw him later, was it when you were close to being home? Yes. Yes. Like uh, like uh, my my our. Our house, so we had to just like take taxi and like buses to home. Like it, it wasn't like just uh, straightforward walking there. So I'm and I didn't notice him just like following me like in a bus or in a taxi. And but just when I, I for some reason when I was like uh, almost like opening the door to go home, I just like looked uh, behind myself and I saw the guy like far away like just uh, looking at me and it was just like very. Uh, it was scary, but that that was uh, that was it, and I didn't think uh, much of it like later. Right, right. Okay. Now, what about the no family love or support? Uh, 
Again, I'm not sure if, again, like the questions are just often, and I'm not sure often, how often is often, like uh, like when say, like if did you feel often like unloved? I don't think that I, maybe I felt like that, I know, like, I know, couple of times a year. And like uh, our family being not very close, like uh, I have like five siblings and uh, we are not particularly very close to each other. We don't hate each other either. And I was close to my sister and then like my brothers, we were all right. Like we would get, get into disputes, but uh, we were all right. They, they just my older brother used to, uh, when we were uh, uh, younger, very young, like maybe like uh, before I turned 10, he used to just like uh, be very bullish and uh, uh, I know like beat us or at least me sometime uh, for whatever reason which I, I really don't remember but I, I, I'm sure it happened and um, again like no family love I, I don't think that that's what happened like I'm like my, my parents did their best to grow us they were poor and I was born in the middle of a war uh, and they did their best to just like uh, uh, raise like six children uh, it, it's not easy to just give uh, all of them a lot of attention and um, I, I don't think that like I was like particularly unloved but I, I don't think that I was like particularly like the center of attention because I was the middle child and like middle child never like gets enough attention it's not the oldest child who's like in charge of everybody it's not the he's not the youngest child who is the, the adorable child it's just like somebody in, in between uh, who nobody knows that uh, he's there um, that's that's the situation of my childhood. That that's why I I don't I don't I don't understand. I can't figure out what happened, why I am having these hard times. I don't think that like my childhood was traumatizing. Right. I just wanted to point out that your family, your parents, having six kids in a war zone. Is that right? Uh, war happened when I was born, which I was like the fourth child. Right. Now, I just want to point that out. First of all, it's it's interesting that it's not exactly Blake yeah. breaking the stereotype of Muslim fertility, right? But I also wanted to point out that for my friends in the West, uh, Ali's parents had six children in a war zone. So don't talk to me about, well, you know, I'm not sure it's the right time in my life to have kids, and I'm not sure I'm going to be able to afford everything that is, blah, 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 right? It, it anyway. will contribute to global warming. I, I can't agree more with you. Yeah, yeah. I just you know the the Muslim commitment to just yeah. having kids is you know kind of a celebration of life in a lot of ways. I and, agree. And you I know agree. that's anyway. So Absolutely. now were you so you say from a Muslim country were you raised as a Muslim? Yes, absolutely. And are I you still like, a Muslim? And I say that just because mm -hmm. some of the people I, I don't who've called are not so much. Yes, I, I don't think I am. Uh, I, I'm like more agnostic. Okay, I, okay. I guess like my, my trajectory is towards like atheism. So then when you were raised as a Muslim in mm -hmm. this country, what was that like in terms of your education in the religious areas? Mm, we had like uh, education that was copied from Western uh, education, not like Western, like uh, this insane liberal uh, indoctrinating. <laughs> you mean the old education. style, old school stuff? <laughs> yeah, right? old, yeah, very old school. Like I would say, like copied from nineties, twenties, uh, or thirties education system. So it was okay. Like of course, like we had like uh, studying uh, Quran and going to mosque, and because I want to make my my family, my parents happy, I would go to mosque. I I participated in uh, these uh, classes for Quran, and I was because. That was the only game. We didn't have like 
debate uh, like uh, clubs or dancing clubs or acting clubs. That was the only game in the town. So I would just go uh, further ahead. And because I, I guess I was the smartest, uh, at least in my class. So that was the only uh, stimulating thing to go after. And I, 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 I um, memorized half of Quran, but I was never like uh, uh, rad call like thinking about yeah like killing people is all right or i i was always like uh what you would say like a soft muslim uh, uh that uh peaceful muslims uh, they exist but they're very rare peaceful muslim well i mean my general thing would be that the uh, muslims that i've known who have high iq much like yourself are generally of the opinion that it is a belief system that can help guide your life but not something to kill or die for. Whereas, of course, with a lot of the cousin marriage, the inbreeding and so on in other countries or other areas, well, you just don't get the same IQ. And unfortunately, the IQ can tend to land in that sort of sweet spot of criminality around 85. And I think that's one of the big issues. Uh, The degree of reformation that's possible until that's dealt with, I'm not sure, is hugely high. Now, what about your relationship to non-Muslims when you were raised, uh, I guess, to some degree in the mosque? What was Because, I mean, you're in a non-Muslim country now, right? At least non-majority Muslim. Yes. So right, when right. you were raised, mm-hmm. what was your relationship? Well, what kind of relationship were you taught to have with non-Muslims? Yeah, I don't know why you're asking this question, but because this is a very interesting question for me. Um, uh, I had a one or uh, like a three or four Christian uh, uh, friends. My, uh, they, they are minority, but they, they are still there. And I remember, like, there's this uh, fatwa in Islam that uh, you cannot shake hand with Christians because they are dirty. It's just, like, saddest thing and stupidest thing about, like... Uh, they are uh, people of the uh, book, but they yes, are not equals, right? Yes. Yes, they are not equals. And if you touch them, they're, like, as dirty as, like, blood, let's say, or, like, any other, like, dirty thing that, like, if you touch them, you cannot, like, pray. And if you touch another stuff, those stuff will become dirty. So it's very bad. So that was the the, the thing that they, when I had to shake a hand with them, I had to go and, like, wash my hands later on. And it's just, like, sad, like, just, like, teaching a child this. So when I now, like, look, look back at this kind of, like, teaching, it's just, like, uh, abhorrent. Uh, but uh, other than that, uh, we we had like a very good relationship. We were just like we were not like the closest friends, but I liked them, and they were very civil and good, and we were very civil, and uh, we were not particularly like uh, having any arguments about uh, religion. I don't think like that that's what teenagers do. So I I didn't have any problems with them other than this sad thing about uh, handshaking and them being not uh, clean. But would you, I mean, other than that too, would there was in general the idea that you would have been superior based upon the religion that you had? Yeah. I, I, and also, not only that, like, I was like Shiite and like there were like Sunni, like Sunni friends in my class. And I, I was like trying my best to make them Shiites, to, to, to sell it, to just make them, uh, to save their soul. What the, the Christians do right now, like with me, right? Like they try to convert you. It, yes. Uh, but, uh, Again, uh, I I was sad about them that they will not go to heaven or maybe they will have a hard time there. And I would like, but I I, I don't remember any any time like bringing up uh, uh, religion to them. Hmm. And when you were taught about the life of Muhammad, was there anything that gave you concern in that teaching? That's interesting that no. I remember like I had like a few people uh, 
they, they were not particularly very devout and but they sometimes would just like make fun of like uh, Muhammad being a womanizer and stuff and I would think that oh god these are just like people who don't have the spine to be religious and they just like making fun of silly things and the yeah he had to have those uh, women because uh, he was uh, getting into a contract with some tribes and he had to like I'm like, like these rationalizing that is going on in like Islam like that that's why like one and a half billion people uh, believe in this stuff because uh, there are ways to justify that and when you're inside that uh, religious and you have a race with that religion it just like seems very just and very reasonable oh no 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 doubt i mean there's everybody who's raised in a belief system it has a kind of inevitability to it like gravity yes, exactly. and, and the weather and so on absolutely absolutely now what about because it also has to do with uh, approaching women your question ali so what about mm -hmm what you were expected or what you are expected to do with yeah. regards to marriage. Dun, dun, dun. You assume <laughs> you have to marry a Muslim, right? Yes, uh, that's correct. Uh, I'm like, uh, because like uh, non-Muslims were so much m minority, nobody were asking us not to marry non-Muslims because like they, they thought like we already knew that. So and we are we already never like thought about that. So it wasn't a, a thing that we just like thought about that. But like the the relationship between us and uh, the opposite sex was the problem. That's the problem. Like our schools are segregated, gender segregated. Uh, I, I was not growing up in a particularly a neighborhood that I had like interaction with a lot of girls. I had interaction with no girls, I guess, like uh, other than my, my sister uh, and like some of my cousins, which we, we would like see them like uh, once or twice a year. Uh, and I guess, uh, the first like girlfriend, if I can call her girlfriend, I had was in college once because the colleges are not segregated, and uh, so like because everything was like segregated from the first grade towards the end of like high school, it just it didn't help uh, at gain gaining any skills uh, uh, dealing with girls. But still, I was trying because of of course I, I was a boy and I was like asking how to like in my country the way you do that so because there's no bars there's no schools to go and ask girls out you chase girls you chase girls you go after them you give them uh, your number if they are interested and like so i learned street, that right? I'm in the street. Yeah, that, no, I mean, I know women who've toured Muslim countries. This is some time back ago, but I've known Ali women who've toured Muslim countries who are somewhat startled by the forwardness <laughs> of, the, of the Muslim <laughs> men. I don't know exactly how to put it in, in a nicer way, but it's like, you know, if your shoelace is untied and you're a woman, you just kind of leave it untied and keep walking, <laughs> if that makes any sense. <laughs> <laughs> yes that 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 does and that was like under like constant threat of like morality police which will definitely catch you and like uh, make you uh, have a real trouble take you to the police station and then your your family but what to, would you uh, be tagged for in that context as a young muslim man? uh as uh just uh, uh, uh i know like a misbehavior or like against like but what would be women? considered misbehavior in the context of girls if if I if I talk to a girl, even if we were talking, if we were going together and uh, we were talking, we were friends, 
morality police, I, they did that to me at least like four times, would come to you and ask you, what's the relationship between you two? And if there is no relationship as like marriage or your sister and brothers, or if there is no relationship and you're just friends, you cannot be friends on the street walking together. You don't need to hold hands. If you hold hands, that's of course like a whole another level. That will be just like very bad. But if they they did they they would just like take you to police station if you're not if if you're not lucky, or you just uh, need to I know to try to just like uh, talk your, uh, yourself out of that situation. Or and what the uh, what is the punishment uh, if they take you to the police station? What could you face for talking to a non-related, non-married, a non-wife woman? It's the part. The, the worst punishment is that like you will stay in the in the. And they're detained until your family, your parents come. And usually the parents don't know because that you are talking to a girl or the girl's parents don't know that she's talking to a boy. And that would be the, the, the most embarrassing thing for the girl. And of course, you would have to write uh, uh, and a promise in the police station that you will not do this uh, anymore. And who knows like what kind of record, uh, criminal record was that going to be for you. And because you were going through like college and after that you wanted to just uh, find a job. And when you're asking for jobs, they, they will just uh, check these kind of backgrounds. They, it was a vague uh, fear of what they will do. They will not arrest you for just talking to a woman, uh, but they will take you to a police station and that's a lot of trauma just like a, oh yeah a, and especially when you're young right issues and yeah oh absolutely let me be perfectly frank with you ali because as as a westerner who was raised as a, as a christian mm -hmm. ah, part of me says this is the worst thing ever this is so repressive this is so horrible and another part of me is well <laughs> Not a lot of Me Too not moments too going bad. on there now, is there? <laughs> I mean... No, it's, it's still, weird. It's weird. I never... Like, I'm sorry to interrupt again. Like, up until, I don't know, a couple of years ago, it would, I would have just been, oh, that's terrible. How There's no freedom. And it's like, well, you know, after Bill Cosby and Harvey Weinstein and Eric Schneiderman and you name it, you name it, you name it, and all of these allegations of sexual misconduct, like, I, I just had a call. Uh, with with a woman who you know I don't know if you listened to it she she got into bed half drunk with some I guy did. she'd had I, half I was, sex with before and now online. she's destroyed his life and part of me is like I gotta tell you Ali I'm, I'm really torn <laughs> you know I can really see <laughs> how this oppressiveness avoids a lot of problematic situations but uh, Stefan uh, as you always say like freedom is remedy to everything like if there's any problem. Give me a problem. Freedom is the solution. This is Fine, yeah, like, okay. On, on yeah, face, yeah, that's true. On the face, it, this might look like good as a good solution, but the thing is, like, of course, the boys and girls are already attracted to each other, and because they cannot go to a coffee shop and talk to each other in a coffee shop or like on the street, they would try to just like uh, go to their each other's houses, and then like. Uh, because uh, it happens just about once a year that your house is like your parents are not house at home and you would be able to like bring a girl or a boy to your house uh, and that's just like one uh, opportunity for your uh, for your whole year and who knows what you would do at at home after all of this uh, repression and oppression so sounds like a sexual I, emergency I, to me but uh, yeah. yeah i can understand that. right so again uh, i it can be like uh, preventing is good, like not what is going on here and me too and just going in, in, into bed with a guy and like then just complaining about like rape is good. Not that just like uh, oppressing people is good. 
Right, right. No, I mean, I agree with you. Somewhere yeah. in the middle, but with freedom no, as the I, consequence. I, totally, yeah, I, know, I know that you were just like uh, tongue in the cheek, what you were saying, but I was just like going to uh, point it out. Yeah, as long as it's my own tongue in my cheek. I think that's, <laughs> it. that's all right. Now, do your parents know about your drift towards agnosticism? They don't. They don't. I hope they. They. Uh, my, my mom will. Well, I know. Like I. I never want to like put them through this. This kind of stuff. That they have their own uh, issues. They don't need to uh, worry about my uh, eternal life and how I will be in hell because that. That's what they believe, and uh, it. It will be very, very uh, concerning for them. And I don't want to concern them. No, of course. Although you might have to, but. Um... What, so? uh, what, uh, when you were growing up, Ali, how traditional in the Islamic faith, how traditional were your parents or was your parents' relationship? Very traditional. We never like saw them uh, holding hands or kissing. Uh, that, they didn't even like sleep in one bed. So, and they, they had six kids. Um, <laughs> it's so. a very firm handshake they've got going on here. <laughs> yeah, very traditional, I would say. Yeah, very, very okay, traditional. Okay, but what about in terms of male authority, female submission, submission and so on? Because, was- you know, I have this, I have this view, and, and, you know, please correct me where I've gone astray, but I've had this view that the more, quote, oppressed the women are out in public, the more dominant they tend to be in the home, particularly with the children. Absolutely not. My my dad was the was the king of the house, and my mom was just like uh, absolutely. It was traditional family. My, my, uh, my dad, of course, had the authority. My mom uh, barely like uh, it, it was always like what what my dad said would happen. It wasn't like like my 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 dad will beat my mom. I just saw that. I guess like maybe happening two times or three times in my whole lifetime, and that was just like very traumatic. Uh, traumatizing. Oh, you mean but, the beating? Beating just like yeah, but having arguments and stuff like uh, and my my mom was very submissive to my dad and she thought that that was the right way to uh, live the life. Well, I mean, it's not that she thought. I mean, that is prescribed, right? <laughs> I prescribed as a as a child to her, and I guess like she thought that that was the right thing to do. But that is the right thing to do according to certain interpretations of the Quran, if I understand that correct. And it's the same thing in Christianity, right? That the yeah. there's God yeah. and then. The husband and then, well, God, Jesus, the husband, the wife, and then the children, right? I mean, that that is kind of the way that things are prescribed in some religions, right? Oh, yeah, absolutely. In Quran, of course, you know that it is <clears throat> absolutely a patriarchal uh, religion. And <clears throat> in the text, in the Quran, it says that, sorry, <clears throat> that men have authority uh, towards women. It's just like uh, clearly, unvaguely, it's just stated there. Right. Now... With regards to the kind of, well, let me ask you this first. Do you want to get married and have kids? I didn't. I didn't last year. I I do after listening to your show. If that makes any sense to be that much like uh, your opinion, open to be swayed that much. Well, I appreciate that, and I'm thrilled to hear it, Ali. Because really, you know, really, like, like it's and, funny because people say to me, "Oh, Steph, you only had one child," but it's like that's true, <laughs> oh, directly. No. But yeah. I've encouraged lots and lots of people because I think it is a wonderful thing and a wonderful <laughs> part of life, and I hope that you get what you want with regards to that. But the question is now, how? Because if you're going to marry a Muslim woman, well, you're going to make your parents happy. 
I'm not. You're not going to marry a Muslim woman? No. You Islamophobe. What's the matter with you? <laughs> right. Okay, so, so tell me about that particular thought process. Uh, I... I don't know, like, I, I had, like, Iranian girl... Oh, I just, like, uh, told you where I'm from. Girlfriends. And um, I I don't know, like, uh, they, they were okay. They were good. They, they were high IQ uh, people. But I I I think I I, I, I want something more. I, I want something more stimulating. I, I want something new, a new world. And I don't know, like, uh, I, I my decision is not to marry a Muslim woman, especially a devout Muslim woman. But uh, in general, not a Muslim woman. Come on, it's only 40 or 50 years of faking it. Come on, you <laughs> yeah, can do it. Exactly. Take Pascal's exactly. wager. What if you're wrong? What if you do go to hell? Okay, that's what not I very helpful. To, to tell your kids that that's a problem. What are well, you yeah, going to tell kids, your right? kids? Yeah, it's the kids, right? Yeah, it's the kids. Yeah, like it. Now, do you know of other, I guess, people from your culture, your country, or your general neck of the woods, that's very collectivist, but who are doing that maybe second generation de-emphasis on some of the original belief systems who are in a similar sort of spot uh, between fundamentalism and I don't know where you'll end up, maybe pure atheism or maybe somewhere else. Is there, are there other people who are on this journey that you know of? Oh, absolutely. Back in my country, uh, it's just going uh, crazy, all crazy liberal. Like it, It's because of the internet. Like what is happening here just like transfers there itself through internet through media and now there's something called like white marriage if you believe it or not in a muslim country that uh, people live together as I don't know, if they call themselves girlfriend or boyfriend but never marry and they don't want to have kids and that's that's going and that's like uh, among educated uh, second ger- generation like my age people uh, uh yes like uh, again like when you oppress people a lot they will they will try to just sway the other way and uh that's what's happening in my country, but not in other, my country, just like we already said, like my country is Iran, and Iran has a particular like situation in Islam, uh, because, uh, of course, the, the Shiites are like minority, they, their beliefs are a little different, but also because of the religious government that they had, and religious government, as it did, there was a religious government during the dark ages in Europe, and just like turned everybody away from religion, because everybody hated religion, because all the oppression was done in the name of religion. Before the revolution, uh, people were very, very traditional and very uh, Islamic, very uh, close to Arab countries. But after the revolution, everything changed. And uh, I think of it as a revolution. It seems to me much more of a devolution. It was. It was absolute, absolute devolution, as you say. Yeah. Uh, but right now, yeah, people are, a lot of like people are becoming agnostic, atheistic, and a lot of people, uh, it's very hard to find like very devout people there. I don't know. I would say like maybe now 20%, 30% of the people there are like devout Muslims. I, I um, almost every day, Ali, I, I mean, as I've said before, I have a very soft spot for your country. And Every day, uh, I see some act of defiance, some act of resistance. Uh, that to me is yes, the real resistance yes, going on. And exactly. every day, I'm like, "Can this swell? Can this grow? Can you be free again?" I mean, uh, Stefan, uh, in 2009, we had like this huge uh, movement in Iran uh, for for freedom, and uh, I was on the streets. I was beaten by police, uh, and we were like out at this for a year like on the street getting beaten getting killed getting murdered and getting raped in the uh, uh, 
jails and uh, prisons be just because we were asking for freedom. And at the time, I remember like on the street, Obama, like 2009, Obama was just elected and we, we had a lot of hopes and we were like chanting, Obama, Obama, you're either with them or you're with, with us. And Obama had already like uh, chosen like uh, which side he was going to stand on. And uh, yeah, a bit of a bait and like, switch there, right? For freedom lovers. He, Oh yeah, uh, it, we were so 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 much betrayed because at this at the time Obama was like trying to uh, uh, wield his uh, uh, legacy of the deal with Iran, the, the nuclear deal, and they were just like having these like secret uh, letters back and forth with our supreme uh, leader at the time, just at the time that they were killing people on the streets, just because to make sure that his deal was going through, he, he just gave the green light and they just uh, br brutalized the whole people and just like the whole movement just died. Yeah, well, I mean, there are certain forms of fundamentalism that require that level of violence to survive, right? I mean, there's certainly, so I read yes. this quote, yes. uh, the most influential Sunni leader in the Middle East uh, said, if the Muslims had gotten rid of the punishment for apostasy, Islam would not exist today. Oh yeah, exactly. Yes, it just like by force. Like um, our, my country was not Muslim country, and a lot of countries were not Muslim country. We were not, uh, we were not converted to Islam by by the power of war. We were converted to Islam by the power of sword. Well, just ask if, the uh, the Hindus in India, right? You know, like, but all you ever hear about is the uh, Westerners coming to North America and the the brutality and this and that. But you know, around the world. Well, there have been other groups that have not spread yeah. most peacefully either, but you never really hear about that, right? Exactly. Yeah, I agree. Okay. So you want to get married. You want to have kids. What is it? Well, okay. What kind of women are you approaching? And this is sort of a personal question, but, you know, we've yeah, already no, talked absolutely. about getting your no, butt grabbed in the So who is the women? What kind of women are you most attracted to? And, you know, when you're, when, when you're most attracted to a woman, that's when your anxiety yes, is going to be the highest when you want to ask exactly. her out. It's one of these curses of masculinity that women don't really seem to appreciate that much. It's like the more attracted you are to someone, the more nerve-wracking it is to ask her out because you really care if she says no. So I have to then ask, what kind of women are you most attracted to uh, to make the nervousness that high? Uh I, I was just like, of course, like like everybody, like I'm attracted to uh, fit girls. Uh, uh, Wait, so uh, fit in the British sense or fit in the American? Because fit in the British sense just means pretty. <laughs> fit in the American sense means like uh, work work out a lot. Yes, like uh, athletic body, uh, I would say called sexy, beautiful white women. I'm like Iranians are white, so yeah. Right. Now, <clears throat> but Iranians are white subsection right because not a lot of blondes not a lot of blue eyes right yes. so is there yes. something like, they're in... like italian white yeah 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 closer to italian <laughs> but you know yeah. some of the italians are into the swedish you know the, the tall uh, blonde blue-eyed kind of thing yes, you have exactly that 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 would be that would be the, i guess because like it's not like very common in iran that would be my personal choice if i if i if i had the choice all right so olga the maid in the outfit is like your um, your fantasy, right? Yeah. Okay, okay. And what is your sense of your success possibility with that kind of woman? Zero, I guess. Zero? Okay, why zero? I think. I don't know, because it has never happened. I, I, I have approached like three, four women. Um, 
all all of them told me they had boyfriends and i i think it's just like pointless because like uh, all the good ones are gone and like they're too pretty to be alone that kind of stuff not only that like i'm like as you said it's nerve-wracking to just like approach that kind of like st uh, stunning beautiful woman and once you go there and you see like that kind of like answer it's just like you you think this is pointless why am i doing this why am i putting myself through this to just like get rejected and where is your level of physical attractiveness if you had to do that one to ten scale i don't know i i, I probably six seven i have no idea and I'm so like, what do you bring to a ten? Like if, you, if you're looking at a woman who I think objectively would rank as a 10, I think that's what you're mm -hmm. talking, stunningly beautiful or whatever, right? right then right. what is it that you bring to the table that makes up for not being as physically attractive? Right now, nothing, I guess. Right now, I have, I'm an immigrant, not even an immigrant. I'm just a student here trying to become an immigrant. It's, it's uh, hard as hell to become a legal immigrant here. And... Uh, uh, I am still a student and studying my uh, graduate studies. So right now, I will say nothing. I, I I don't I don't I don't see particularly why they should choose me over a seven feet blonde guy, <laughs> masculine right. guy. Why right. without accent and like who's American? Why they should choose me? I I know that. Well, it's not just that. It's not just that. I mean, look, you have a very engaging and enjoyable intellect and your verbal skills are wonderful and i've no doubt that Thank you will you. be an Thanks enormous success in your life and and that's going to be wonderful to see but here's the thing right i mean you want some tall blonde goddess to get involved with a guy who hasn't even told his muslim parents he's not a muslim how's that going to play out in the long run you know what kind of comfortable relaxing family chats are going to be had around the not christmas table do you know what I mean? Like that's that's a complicated situation to walk into, right? Yeah, is is just a perspective of the the from the woman uh, perspective right? perspective of the woman, right? Yeah. yeah. So even if she said, well, you know, I, I, Ali is yeah, the highest thing on they, two they, legs, and uh, you know, I love him to death. He's a wonderful guy. <laughs> but women have, I'll tell you this, I'm and sure you probably know this. Hang this. on a sec. Hang on a sec. You probably know this about women, but I'll just sort of remind you about it. That women like. Men are fiery-hearted, random demons of lust and desire. And that's why we have a civilization. So I think it's a wonderful thing. But men fall head over heels in love and in lust. And you get all of this, right? Absolutely. You, you live this. I lived this when I was younger. And I'm still very much in love with my wife. But, you know, we, we just like, wow, that, that woman behind the checkout counter is really pretty. I'm going to ask her out. Future be damned. I don't care. She could have like serial killers for parents, but that's fine because she's got boobs or whatever, right? So we – Exactly. We, look, we leap where fools we, – we leap in where angels fear to tread, uh, driven by – uh, manly lust and so on but women it's very very different and you can understand why from an evolutionary standpoint because for us it's you know 18 and a half minutes followed by a nap for a woman it could be 20 years of raising a kid so for women there is there <laughs> right. is lust among women for sure but that lust is controlled by the cold icy frozen fisted calculation of results of, of they look deep into time men look very little into time going forward when we fall in lust fall in love or whatever you want to call it but women have this cold calculated long term 
that goes on, which is why men so often get into bad relationships. And women certainly do. And I'm talking about the kind of women that you really want to be with, like smart, intelligent, yes. capable yes. women. They look at a guy. So they'll look at you and they may say, yeah, he's got those kind of exotic uh, Middle Eastern looks and he's kind of hip and funky and, you know, obviously very intelligent. He's got a good future ahead of him. And so she probably gets that little tingle, right? That little, ooh, that Absolutely. little tingle. But oh, then what happens is this this unrolling of time goes on in a woman's head where she says, okay, well, uh, Islamic parents, uh, he hasn't told them it's going to be complicated. I'm going to wander into this family, be viewed as an outsider. There's going to be a lot of pressure to have my kids uh, be raised in the Muslim faith, and it's going to be complicated, and it's going to be challenging, and I'm going to know not really know how to talk to those people that well and, you know, always going to have problems with your mother-in-law. But when it comes to Christian slash Muslim, those problems <laughs> may be exacerbated and so on. So there's this cold, suddenly she oh, has a boyfriend, right? Yeah. And she's like, you know, yeah. sorry, but uh, I, I can't fall in love with you because on the other side of that falling in love is a lifetime of significant complication. And that is a real challenge for it's a big thing to ask a woman to overcome, if that makes sense. I mean, you haven't even overcome it. You haven't even told your parents. You start dating no, some Christian blonde goddess, and, uh, <laughs> you know, that's kind of saying so, right? So how's she going to deal with something that you didn't even want to deal with yet? I, I, that My thinking was um, that I would tell them if, if it needs to be told, but I would not do that before. I, it is absolutely necessary. And also, like... The girls, I'm wait, talking wait, to like wait, they, 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 they... Nah, that's where you're wrong. <laughs> oh, I'm sorry, Ali, that's where you're wrong. Because a woman yeah. has incredible radar, as most people do, for how at ease a man is with himself. Now, if you're approaching a woman and you've already had the conversation with your parents saying, listen, I'm not going to marry a Muslim woman. If you've, if you've already had that conversation, you're going to approach a woman with a certain ease and peace of mind. That's just going to be part of it, right? But if you're approaching her with like, well, if you're, if I fall in love with you enough, I face certain collision course with my parents' belief systems. Ooh, that's tense. You're going to be tense about it, whether you like it or not, right? So if you don't already have that squared away, it's going to be very hard to approach a woman because the stakes are so high. The stakes are high enough just if you like the girl. But if you like the girl and she comes with a relationship that means you're going to have to deal with the stuff with your parents, that is a minefield and a half. Does, does that make sense? You can't uh, be cool does. with those kinds of stakes, right? I think I think you're right. But even just like as just asking for girlfriend, just like asking them out, like uh, it's just like very anxiety triggering, and I just don't understand why it is. Like just like let's say like uh, maybe yeah, you're right. Maybe like I I just feel that I'm I'm negotiating from a lower like position because i am muslim uh, i'm coming from a muslim background i i have accent i'm not american yet no no but you just maybe, avoided everything that i oh, good job man you are dodgy <laughs> you sorry, just avoided no, I, the I really one central thing that i talked about and talked about everything else really? that i didn't talk about i didn't talk about you coming from a muslim background specifically i didn't talk about you looking middle eastern i didn't talk about what did i talk about that's the big uh, challenge that the girls don't want to get into all of this drama with uh, dealing with with a uh, Muslim guy and no, Muslim family. No, it's not even particularly that. It's that you haven't dealt with it yet. But they don't know that. Yes, they do. They how, do, how do they? based because you think you can hide all these things. 
You think you think women haven't evolved to figure out when a man is at peace with himself and a, 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 in a certain relations, peaceful and honest and open relations with his family? Of course they have. Women like women see deeper into the human, the male mind than the male mind can even see into itself. I mean, I I kind of agree with you, but I guess. It's like this old evolution thing is just like kind of overrated. I, if the evolution was really, really that powerful, I would say like we should have been the uh, the, the the sons of the people who had the, the the guys who had like the best game and were the, the best pickup artists because they were the ones who, who could make it out of the brutal environment and uh, pass on their genes. No, but, but uh, no, come we, on. we get no, anxious no, on, as we approach women. No, listen, you know that the whole point of we're not talking the modern welfare state bullshit. We're talking about actual evolution yes, when resources yes, were scarce. Yes, exactly. And what women had to do was they had to figure out who was just a player and who actually was going to commit to them. And a woman mm. had to see through a man's through glib that. talk into his family relations as a whole. Why? Because the survival of her children had a lot to do with how well the man got along with his family. Because the family gives a lot of additional resources to her children. Right? They've got grandparents. They might inherit stuff. You at least have extra childcare for when you, uh, when you have this. And of course, also, should the woman die in childbirth, if the man is connected to his family, then the family can step in, take her place and help raise those children. And so a woman yeah. is not just marrying you. What do we look at? We look at a woman's smoky, pretty eyes, her high cheekbones, her full lips, her figure, and we're just like, whoa, I'm in love, right? That's what <laughs> men do, right? But women look at your whole spider web of relationships and try and figure out what is going to be best able to support yeah. her children. Now, that is yeah. going to include not just you as an individual, but you as an entire extended family unit. Women look much deeper, much further than just you. We look at fertility signs in, in the woman, and we don't care that much about her family because lust, but women look at you and your family as a whole, and they're very good at figuring out what your relationship is like with your family. Listen, I'm telling you this from very personal experience, though I'm trying not to project my experience onto yours, Ali. I did not get a quality, great, wonderful woman until I had dealt with and resolved my family issues, my family mm. of origin issues. And then and only then, and I don't even know the mechanics by which it occurred, but then and only then could I settle down with a quality woman. And I wasted a lot of time thinking I could hide my challenges with my family of origin, but I couldn't because I could never wow. find someone to settle down with until it was wow. dealt with. And once it was dealt with, I swear, within six months, I met a woman, we settled down, we got married within 11 months. We've been happily married for 15 years. And it happened very, very shortly after I dealt with my yeah. family issues. Do you think it's because you became peaceful or just because you became peaceful and they could see you through? I, you know, if I had to try and unpack that, I'd be a woman. I'm just telling you, you right. know, and I know oh. yeah, it's, exactly. you know, it's, I don't know it's after this because and therefore because of this, there's all these fallacies, but... Right. I think it's because I could bring my entire self to the relationship. Mm. Because if you are, you find some woman of your dreams, let's forget about all the shallow stuff about blonde and blue eyed and whatever. You right. understand, like that's a bit of a fetish yes, rather than looking for a quality yeah. woman. But let's say you find the woman of your dreams. As you get closer and closer to her, you're going to be more and more nervous about your family because it's a collision course, right? So she's going to sense that ambivalence and you're not going to be emotionally available to her. Yeah, I understand. I'm mean, like, I, I have not even like told my families that I want to stay here. Oh, they think, are they thinking of heading back? 
they think that I'm heading back in, in a few months um, after like five years being here. And I wow. have not been able even to tell them that. Wow. And why do you think that is, Ali? Because I feel guilty for leaving them alone. They got a bunch of other kids, haven't they? They won't be alone. They, they did, but I always like was the kid who I was like, uh, tried to be with them when other kids left our city to other cities for education or marriage. I, I always like helped them. I, I stayed home. I was like the kind of child was who was always like taking care of everything at all. Why did they come to the states? They didn't come to. The, I, I I came to the states. Oh, just you. Just I'm so sorry. I thought just, that. Uh, yeah. Okay. Right. Why did they send you to the states? They did not. They didn't want me to come. I I wanted to come to stage i just want to i don't know like try a new lifestyle and try, oh don't try tell me that life. i know what it is ali you're like hey america there are blondes there <laughs> tall well, blondes like, with blue <laughs> eyes i'll be in him yeah sometimes yeah, yeah. maybe even 72 of them no, i'm just kidding all right. all right it's it's not easy to to talk to like to very smart people they they they, they see through you very easily yeah, that's bad it's a cultural experience called the threesome <laughs> i believe i've seen some on the internet <laughs> right no i know i know it wasn't just that i just thought that was kind of funny yeah i know and, and do, you, do you find the that? the sort of american culture and experience is more in line with what you want in life i like it yeah it's it, you still have like lots of other opportunities here than you had in Iran. You you still have like freedoms that you don't have in Iran. You don't, for God's sake, you don't have in like in, in UK the freedom of speech that you have here. No, they, you they certainly don't to... have religious enforcement gangs roaming the streets dragging you off the. Yes, right. yes. Like you have a lot of like freedoms coming from that kind of. I'm like in. I'm sure if I go back to Iran, I will be very successful back there. But I, I just. Again, like I think I have experienced that, that lifestyle. Oh, I, but I you'd want... get. I'm sorry to interrupt this. So just before I forget the thought, if you're talking about only twenty to thirty percent of the Iranians still being fundamentalist, mm -hmm. then wouldn't you have a wider pick of women to choose from? Oh, absolutely, absolutely. So, with regards to your sex life, and I'm not saying this like it's just. I mean, that's that's a very essential aspect of life. It's kind of why we're yes. all here to begin with. Yeah, yeah. So, with <laughs> regards to your sex life. Ali can get some in Iran, but not so much in America, right? Absolutely. Right. And you know, of course, the reasons that like, I don't like, come from, I, I don't have that baggage of like being a Muslim and they, they not being a Muslim or immigrant and uncertain like, future. Yes. Absolutely. Right, right, right. And of course, there would be a lot of people who would be in your similar situation who have uh, drifted away from the faith of childhood. Oh, yeah. And uh, so, okay. So then the question is, is there any equivalent community in America to who you might meet in Iran? Can you give up I, the blonde fetish in return for a potential relationship? I, I guess I'm not ready. I, I, I just. <laughs> I don't mean, don't get me wrong. I think it's a strong enough. fetish for you, but the question <laughs> is, right? Oh my god! No, I, I just don't find it challenging enough. I, I don't think that like that's the, the extent of my what do you ability. mean you don't find it i'm sorry you don't find it challenging <laughs> enough to date an iranian woman oh i'm looking yeah. forward to all the emails we're going to get from iranian women now <laughs> based on this call i'd like to thank you for all of that 
Oh, I hope that they, they don't. But, but again, I believe yeah, that may be a little like, more difficult for you now, based upon I, that comment. <laughs> yeah, I, I, can I take it back? Like as Angkor says, I would, says, I would like, if I were you. I would never, if I never you. apologize. Maybe just say yeah. translation error. Let me re-explain <laughs> what it is that I mean. Yes. Okay. What I mean is that like it's easy for me to get Iranian women, and what is easy always like is not what I want. Okay, so tell me how it's easy to get Iranian women. So you walk because up to an Iranian I, woman, and and what ha- what do you do that's, that makes it easy? What I do, it like they will be open to to this because I, uh, if like uh, because I'm educated in the West, like I would have like uh, a lot of like status there, just right there. Oh no, I'm, no, no! I'm, I meant Iranian women in America. In America, I, I'm like, in, in, I guess, like uh, on my own. I'm not like that. I'm not ugly. I'm, I'm sure, and I, I'm fit. I'm, I'm athletic. I guess, like, I, I, I would bring enough uh, options to the table to be able to uh, 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 ask them out, and they, they would be. I guess that's, that's what my experience is. Like, I have been to Iranian communities around here in Boston or any other cities, and uh, it was. Very easy, right? I'm like not so, because so they, here's the, the issue. Are easy. Now here's the issue, right? Okay, here we go. Now we're getting to the core. So, right. If it's too easy, you're not interested, right? No, no. So exactly. how tough is it for a blonde goddess to get a date from you? Very easy. <laughs> ah, you see, <laughs> you see how this works, my friend. Oh my God! Yes. Oh yeah. You so think if they, you're they, so they desperate like for a particular physical type. Most times you can't get it because it's like, eh, this is easy. Right. Yeah. A fetish is a kind of masochism, you understand, right? Because it, it, it has you desperately reaching for something that the reaching drives it further away. Because, you know, I'm going to give you the annoying older guy lecture on look for a woman <laughs> of virtue, look for a woman of quality, look for a woman of character. Don't look for physical attributes. That's dehumanizing, and it's going to torture you. I agree. You can't do and kind of don't. I I don't think that they're uh, your brain agrees. Exclusive. Your balls, <laughs> on the other hand, <laughs> I don't think they're mutually exclusive. They, they, I don't think they. they, they no, but they're not always other. in sync, right? Mm, yeah, maybe. Yes, I would love to have very smart, engaging girl who's like. Uh, hot smoking hot that's <laughs> mm-hmm. i hope that, that that that's not killing the whole the conversation no no i mean of, of of course of course but then in order to do that then you have to be somebody with abs and a million dollars yeah right yeah. so if yeah. you if you want these massively high standards for a woman right then you have to bring those massively high standards to the table and if you can't, well, you have to lower your standards because you're going to ask the woman to lower her standards, right? What I thought was that if I just could could just approach like I don't know hundred girls, I would like increase my my chances a lot because I have seen like people who who don't bring that much to the table, but they have like uh, amazing girlfriends, uh, not just like beautiful, but like very smart and very nice, kind, uh, and I don't see them like bringing a lot to the table. Or maybe I, I'm just wrong, but uh, yeah, that was the, the that's the core issue. I think that like right now, yes, I don't have like a million dollar. I'm not like uh, seven feet uh, high, but 
I I, did, I I thought that that would be what I would bring to to table. Being well, bold and just okay. approach, approach, approach. Let me guess. Engineering? You studying engineering? <laughs> exactly. Yeah, you are right. <laughs> yeah. Wow, an Iranian studying engineering. Whatever next? Like, okay. <laughs> Whatever next. Uh, next, you're going to tell me you have a hairy back. No, I'm just kidding. All right. Um, so here's the thing. So you have an uncomfortable relationship with your anxiety, right? But maybe yeah. your anxiety is trying to help you. Oh. Maybe your anxiety – so there's, there's two kinds of anxiety, right? There's the anxiety, which is, I really want this good thing, and I'm nervous I'm not going to get it, right? Yeah. But then there's the anxiety of, I'm being drawn by irrational desires into a potential disaster. I can't turn off the lust because I'm only anxiety, and anxiety never trumps lust, at least for men. I can't turn off the lust, but at least I can harm the self-confidence to the point where the lust probably isn't going to achieve its object. Because maybe what you're aiming for is something that won't work for you. In other words, if you're going for a physical type, every man at one time or another who has dated successfully, Ali, every man, and I won't give you my own particular experience in this, but I think you can guess. Every yeah. man has dated based upon a particular physical quality or attribute that they find most alluring, right? Right. Right. Every man has done that. And just about every man has lived to regret it. Hmm. Because you're choosing the woman based upon something which is not a quality of character, but an accident of physicality. I, I really care about uh, the quality of character. I really do. Wouldn't you but have a lot I, more in common I, with an you, Iranian but, woman then who has a similar kind of background and a similar kind of upbringing and would have similar kind of values? I guess I would, but the thing is that... I, okay, this, so this, don't tell me about all of these inner attributes you're looking for. This anxiety was with me even when I was in Iran. So that's that's the thing. Uh, this is not a new thing. Wait, you had anxiety with the women you could get easily? <laughs> I guess it was just like boasting and like just... Uh, it wasn't like I'm like um, here because I have my status has risen to a guy who has like educated in West and now wants to marry. My status is like higher, and that's what I bring to the table. But back in Iran, I was just like nobody, right? Just one in the millions. And oh, it's uh, like when I, uh, when I come to Canada with a British accent, people are like, Ooh. the girls in particular, like, there's a reason I hung on like grim death to this accent, which I last practiced when I was 11 years old. That's 40 years ago. There's a reason I hung on to this accent. I lost my hair, but I'm going to keep this accent, man. Yes, exactly. It's not like you're coming from, uh, I don't know, uh, uh, back of the 40 acres in, in, in uh, Alabama. You know, nice tooth, you know, like, uh, uh, so, yeah, you have status now if you go back to Iran. And this is Absolutely. kind of a roller coaster. You go from no one to somebody who has high status among Iranians in the United States to even higher status among Iranian women should you go back. But you now have proximity to your physical fetish. And that is a great deal of quicksand, man. That is yeah. a great deal of quicksand yeah. because a woman knows 
if it's a fetish-based relationship. A woman knows, and she knows how much power she has over you, and almost all human beings are corrupted by power. You make Mm. a woman worse by dating her for physical attributes only because you give her too much power. You can't negotiate. It's a fetish. Can't negotiate. I mean, you see what, I mean, I'm not saying it's the equivalent, but you see these guys who have fetish for being dominated. The whole point is to not negotiate, right? Just have hot wax dripped on the nipples and have something unholy attached to their balls. You know, I mean, that's the whole point. Mm-hmm. So I think, I think uh, like, if, if you're approaching women based upon that physical attribute, the anxiety might be danger, danger, danger. But I'm not. Uh, the, the problem, that's, that's the problem. The problem is that I, I rarely uh, uh, approach them, of course. I, I cr- crash and burn. Uh, but uh, usually what I approach is not very uh, attractive women because I think I have uh, – that, and that, that, that's what I, I hate about myself, doing that. Wait, not very attractive them. white women or not very attractive women as a whole? As a whole. Right. And does that yeah. work for you? Sometimes it does. Sometimes it does not. And your lack most of respect of, most, for yourself is based on what? Most of it. Just because they're not that attractive? Yes. And why am I doing that? Well, what are their qualities of character? Uh, I, 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 like when you approach them, you don't, you don't think much of them. Well, you should start. Hmm. Right? You should start thinking about their qualities of character. Yeah. Again, so when you when you want to like, that's the thing. When you, so they are not that attractive. They are not that engaging. So you don't get anxious when you approach them because it's easy, and uh, that and and you just hate yourself for doing that because you're doing something that. Well, you're yeah, using them, right? Because you don't have any intention no, of a long-term no, not, relationship. No, not because using them. It's just testimony to your weakness. And well, no, but do just, you get into longer-term relationships with these women? No. Of course not. So you're just using them for sex, right? Yes, unfortunately. What do you mean, unfortunately? (laughs) Unfortunately is you stabbed your toe in the dark with something someone left behind accidentally. Unfortunately, these are specific choices that you're making, right? Yes. And I don't know why I'm I'm making them. It's just like because of the mandate of the biology? I don't know. Well, no, there is a mandate of the biology. But the question is, as a man, you have to scrub away the fetish and look for the quality of character. Right. You have to but look for then, the... Well, now, I'm not... Like, it, it, it doesn't yeah, mean yes. be indifferent to appearance at all. Right. Right? Like, I'm mm. not... Like, some woman who's 300 pounds, like, I'm sorry, that indicates <laughs> personality characteristics that are yes. not good. Right? That indicates yes. a lack of willpower. It indicates a lack of uh, knowledge about how you come across to others. It in- indicates a lack of capacity to defer gratification. It indicates lower fertility and hard-to-clean places with god knows what growing and so it's not like physical appearance is irrelevant and i'm not saying well find some woman of glorious character housed in some horrifying shell of an exterior (laughs) but what i am saying is that it is the quality of character that is the foundation of the family and if you are starting to look at something longer term that may lead to a family then it is quality of character that you need. Now, if you're mostly going for looks alone, you're going to be in a position of weakness and you're going to be in a position of self-contempt. And I think that yes. your anxiety is saying, because you've listened to this show for a while, right, Ali? So your yes, anxiety yes. is probably saying, 
this is a bad basis for pursuing a woman. But when I when I when I ask a woman out, uh, it's not like I know the woman for a long time. I just saw, see a woman and I think like, how how would I know the the, the quality of the character, like the, the content of their character? Well, you have Unless a conversation I, before you ask the person out, right? Oh, I just go and go and say hi. I can ask you out. I guess. Well, maybe you <laughs> can spend stupid. a little bit of it's time getting to know a woman because if you ask a woman out <laughs> without getting to know her. Of course, you're going to end up feeling contempt because you're asking a vagina out and taking the person regretfully along, right? Right. Hmm. So you have a conversation and you have a coffee or you have an innocuous friend zone conversation, ask about history, ask about family, ask about values, belief systems. I mean, these are all things that you talk about before you get involved with someone. Most people just don't or avoid these topics because they think that there'll be a compatibility cock block that occurs if they actually start talking about <laughs> values. But you're already having yes, a cock block exactly. occurring in the form of anxiety. So you might as well ask about values because you ain't getting anywhere otherwise. So there's no like magic remedy for anxiety. Well, I think struggling to understand the root of it is is important. And I think, mm. based upon what you've told me, Ali, that you are making decisions about who to date based on factors other than the quality of character. And that is a dangerous place to be. It's a dangerous place to be because we know that there are false accusations floating around. We know that yeah. a woman can get pregnant. We know that women can even sperm jack men, right? And we also know that there's <clears throat> massive rates of sexually transmitted diseases around these days. Yeah. You are doing quite a bit of Russian roulette here, right? Oh, yeah. So you need to find a quality woman. And you but need you, to find somebody with a good character, somebody who's strong and brave and noble and courageous and intelligent and has integrity and is curious about you. And you need to bring those values to the table as well. Because agree, what philosophy but... brings together, it seems no man can tear asunder. Yeah, I absolutely agree. But the thing is, like, I, I'm asking them out to just have a, this, this conversation. But that's the thing. I just starting to ask them out for a conversation is like anxious, anxiety triggering. Yeah, uh, and I'm saying, if you're mostly attracted to the woman for her looks, hmm. then that may not be the person to ask out. There's a lot of nonverbal, you know, 90% of communication is nonverbal, right? There's a reason I film these conversations and put them out on YouTube, right? Because a lot of conversation is nonverbal, right? Oh, it's, yeah, it's totally different than listening to the, I've, I've seen that. Yeah. Right, so you just, ask a woman a couple watching. of questions and you see if she asks you any questions back. And if she doesn't, well, she's probably kind of self-absorbed and you move on, right? Okay. I guess, yeah. That's the best way. Again, the thing is that I didn't have the skills of how to approach women in West because I was uh, raised in a like, godforsaken place like uh, after revolution. And uh, uh, so I came here. So how, how, how would I know? How would I learn those skills? I, I started like, watching these videos of like, pickup artists and then like reading this absolutely uh, abhorrent book of the game. And they just like messed me up much, much more. Yeah. I mean, you know, all due respect for some of the confidence that they're trying to instill in men. But as far as 
getting a philosophically quality woman, I don't no. think that manipulation is the way to go. Yeah, just be be rude to them. Don't be nice, and like just uh, it just really messes up with your with your head. And but you think this is the book, this is the, the video, and it works. You can see that in the video. You can yeah, like the book says it works. So you go for it, and then I know like again like uh, some of it goes back to again like the anxiety, which I don't know if it's coming from my childhood. Some of them, some of it goes to lack of a skill, and some of it, I guess you're right. Uh, goes back to not approaching the right woman that I would be happy with and uh, just then ending up with uh, self-contempt. Well, if you have, you know, men want sex, right? And I made this case before that if you want the most possible sex in your life, then get involved with a woman with whom you share values. Hmm. And that's going to get you the most possible sex in your life. Because if you get involved with kind of trashy women or women who don't share your values, you're going to end up with volatility. You're going to end up with emotional problems. You're going to end up with potentially dangerous situations. And there's going to be a long time. You're going to end up with self-contempt. And eventually, you just might not be able to get a boner because you don't like where it's pointing. Oh, absolutely. And if you end up getting married or having a long-term relationship with a woman where you don't share values or your values oppose, well, the sex life is going to be it's going to diminish to nothing and then you're going to be having a huge problem. But if you have a relationship with a woman and you share values, it's great. It's great the whole way along. So I'm trying to help you get what you want. You know, even if all we say you want is a lot of sex, the way to do it is through compatible values. Yeah, I agree. All right. And and again, getting there is just like very important. Just not being anxious just even like approaching the woman you 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 think it's it will be very smart very intelligent uh but again like just going and approaching will be it is still hard but i i i really appreciate what you were saying here and i i I, i'm going to listen to this like a a couple of times and i guess there are like a lot of points here for me oh good well uh, let me know how it goes and i certainly wish you the very best of luck going forward. And I really, really appreciate your openness and honesty in this conversation. It's not the easiest thing in the world to talk about, but you did very well. And I appreciate uh, your help and also your, your wisdom, like always, which is like very, very enlightening. Thanks a lot. Thanks, Ali. Appreciate the call. Thank you. Bye. Okay, up next, we have Trent. Trent wrote in and said, My son died when he was almost two years old in 2005. He had Batten disease, a rare genetic brain disorder. My ex and I adopted two boys from foster care years after his death. They are 11 and 7 now. I have a biological daughter who is 13 and did not contract the disease. I've struggled this past year dealing with his death, closing my business, and my recent divorce. A few years later, I donated my kidney to my father, but my question is, how can I stop thinking about his death and him possibly being somewhere in the afterlife? I have constant thoughts about his passing and want to focus on being the best father I can to my three kids and not on the past with my ex and my son's death. That's from Trent. Hey, Trent. How are you doing tonight? Great. How are you? My I'm daughter right. says my... you have an interesting voice. I'm sorry. Go ahead. My daughter says you have an interesting voice. <laughs> oh, well, <laughs> do thank her for me. <laughs> what a what a, a story! I'm that is that is heartbreaking, and I just I know it's been a while, but uh, I just wanted to express my deep sympathy for the passing of your son. That is 
enormously difficult and and it's one of these things where I can't imagine but I can't imagine if that makes any sense. Yes, thank you very much. Now you this was your first child, right? The the one who died in 05? Yes. And what was the Yes, uh, is it... sorry, go ahead. His name is his name is Zane by the way. I didn't Zane, I didn't mention okay. that in the question. And what was the progression of his illness? How did you find out about it? And how long did it go on for? Well, how it started is he was one years old. Well, since he turned one, we started to notice that he was not responding or not uh, progressing like he should as compared to other children. So uh, right at, right around his birthday, so we had, we had an MRI and and nothing showed up. So a lot of the doctors were saying, well, he was a little bit early, so maybe he's just a little bit below his milestones. As far as he hasn't walked, he wasn't walking yet by one, but that can be a period of between 10 and 14 months. Um, but we, we noticed he was getting worse as far as his, uh, his mannerisms. And sometimes he would, he would stop in the middle of the room and put his hand up. So one of the, one of the things about bad disease is uh, they go blind first. So we didn't realize at the time that he was actually going blind and he was actually looking up to figure out where he was at. Oh, gosh. Oh, uh, where was his language he, at this time? He never spoke ever. Oh, gosh. Never spoke any words. Yeah. And, of course, as your first as well, you don't have the same comparison with other siblings, right? Right. Um, he babbled just like most kids or mm. babies and, uh, he, he drooled a lot, but the, and I, I think that's, that's another thing of the disease that there, um, there's a lot of drooling, there's babbling and, um, but I, I guess if I fast forward a little bit, my daughter was born, uh, 16 months later after Zane was born. Yeah, I was, just, I was we, looking at the 05 and the 13 and doing the math that she was born the year yeah. that he died, right? Yes, he died. Uh, uh, my daughter, she's 13 now, but she she was only seven months right. at the funeral. So your son was sort of past a year. He's starting to go blind, but I guess you wouldn't be aware of that up front, right? Right. Uh, one of the things that we found out is when we went to pick him up because he was he's always happy to see us and in the morning he'd be jumping up by his crib and one day he would he would not get up out of his bed or out of, he was in a crib then and he was struggling just to climb up and, and this was right after my daughter was born and um and I was I was talking to my wife then and and we were just talking about it, like there's something going on there's got to be more than than what we're what we're understanding, so we got another MRI done, and nothing came up again. So this this went on for probably the May of two thousand five before we we finally um, again he he wouldn't get up out of bed, so we actually took him to Riley Children's Hospital in Indianapolis. Sorry, was was he not was he asleep or just had no energy? I don't think he could just physically get up or oh move because oh, what's happening with the is they're slowly losing their motor skills even after the blindness. 
And we didn't realize at this time that he was was depressed, that he was vision deprived. No, we didn't know. We we didn't know anything until we went to Indianapolis and then um, we had all these tests done. And then that's when they pretty much told us that, that he had bad disease. I mean, it was a little less than a week that we were there. They were pretty sure that's what we had. So we went up and we read about it and, yeah, it was pretty devastating to hear. It's a fatal disease. No no one ever lives from it. There's hardly any – there's treatment to – currently there's treatment to, to kind of slow it down. But right now there's there's really no treatment. Uh, now there's four different forms of bat disease and, and uh, Zane had infantile, which is the youngest. He's one of the youngest kids to ever die of bat disease actually. Right. And how long after the diagnosis? I mean, I guess he just continued to deteriorate and decline. Is that right? Yes. So in, in June, June, we got the diagnosis and <clears throat> September, they, they told us he needed a feeding tube. And then in October, he was on hospice. And then November, and then in November, he passed away at, at the end of the month. So it was, it was so fast, all that. Uh, well, that's still pretty long, though. I mean, that's still four or five months after the diagnosis. And, of course, even before that, there's a lot of stress and anxiety of not knowing what's going oh, on. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, we knew that it was a death sentence that he that he was dealing with. So we decided just to we hospice, and then we just took care of him until he died. Right. You know, the last the last 19 days were horrible because – he couldn't eat or drink anymore and he just kept hanging on and we just couldn't understand why. Oh, so like even he just couldn't digest or, or anything like that? Yeah, they told us not to even give him anything anymore because it was hurting his, his system. He just, I guess his, 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 uh, his organs were shutting down so there was no point. They told us just to stop and he's just going to pass away eventually. But, was he uh, on 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 painkillers or anything like that during that time? Yes, and he had anti seizure seizure medicine because a lot of the bad kids have seizures, lots of seizures. So, um, yeah, he was on some pain meds, but we didn't we didn't really. The, obviously, the hardest part is he can't speak. We don't know. We could only see him just his facial expressions. That's the only way we could treat his pain. And you never heard him speak, I suppose, so he couldn't describe anything that was occurring. Right. Or even he'd wince or, you know, but he wouldn't put his hands to where, um, to where things were hurting because, you know, he had a feeding tube the last two years. So everything was, even the medicine, even the medicine was going through there. And what was the, um, what was the feeling, Trent, on Zane's passing? Well, the, I should I should back up a little if I could, Stefan. Sure. Um, my we actually didn't know that, that my daughter might have it as well. They told us she had a twenty five percent chance to have it because because my my ex wife and I are carriers of Batten disease. Um, so we had to get her blood tested and. And it was it was crazy time because 
we were thinking, oh my God, what if she had it too? Oh. Um, well, and it could even be longer, right? If it wasn't the infantile kind, it could go on for many, many year, more years. Yeah. But and uh, from what I've from known and met other parents with bad disease, the the kids t- seem to have the same type. So but the day before he passed away, we actually heard that she didn't oh. that she didn't have it, and then the next day he passed away. So we thought maybe he was just hanging on. <laughs> <laughs> Find that out. But I mean, yeah. I mean, you know that there was very little of him left by the time he passed, right? I mean, I know that you are yeah. religious, I assume, so that there's an – but as far as the brain goes, I mean, again, I'm no doctor, but I would assume that yes. kind of deterioration to the point where even the heart is shutting down and the lungs are shutting down, there's probably not much left of the brain activity, right? Right. Those 19 days, he had one day where he, his eyes opened up for the whole day and then – but most of the time they were closed. Um, but no, I, I'm actually not very religious at all, so – well, I'm um, going was, with uh, you're thinking I about him possibly then. being somewhere in the afterlife. Okay. I, I, it has an I air of religiosity to it, if that makes sense. <laughs> right. But yeah, the the feeling. I mean, it was so hard to wrap your mind around what was going on. Um, because of we knew the time was limited. Um, and there's, there's nothing we could do. You feel totally powerless. Well, you are totally powerless. Right. It's more than a feeling, right? And even I if mean, you could have got treatment, we had, yeah, exactly. We, we, we could have taken them overseas because, you know, in America, it's hard to get, uh, kind of special type of, uh, treatments for that type of disease. Um, experimental, I should say. Uh, but he was just too sick for us to even attempt it, you know. Well, and the outside view, which I I know isn't going to give you any comfort, but the outside view is, if he can't be cured, the point of prolonging the pain is what? There's no, there's no point. That's why we didn't yeah. put him in a hospital or anything. We we decided the hospice was the best the best thing for him is is for him to be at home so he could. He could hear hear us, smell us, you know. Give what comfort you can. Yeah. Yes. Which I think was the correct decision. I mean, I, I it's it's hard to to imagine being in that situation, Trent. But I can certainly see the case for if it's going to happen. In a sense, the sooner the better, right? Because it can't be yeah. changed, and the suffering is is going on and. Life is on hold, and you know what I mean. Well, of course you know what I mean, right? More than more than I could imagine. Yeah, right. And your daughter, um, how old? Yeah. You said at, at seven at the funeral. She was seven months. How old was she when Zane died? Yeah. Um. So yeah, seven months. Oh, when she died. Yeah, seven okay. months. Okay. Of, when he died, rather. Yeah. All right. Yeah, the funeral was about a week later after he passed away. Ah, uh, I mean, I. It's heartbreaking just to think of that tiny coffin, and I just, you know, parent to parent, I'm, I'm, I'm so sorry. What a, uh, you know, it's, uh, it's horrible enough when your parents you love die, but to bury a child is a special kind of hell that uh, I, I wish on no man and no woman. Yeah, I mean, we had we were picking the headstone out. I remember thinking that, you know, during that, during the time we were 
prepping for his funeral while he was still alive, which is just, is a, it's unbelievable. I was like, how can we do this when he's still alive? But we knew that he was going to pass away. It was inevitable. Um, but you had, to, you had to kind of force yourself to, you know, do the funeral plans and do all those things. Well, and the stress, of course, for your um, your wife during during this time when she's breastfeeding, and I assume the stress also when she was pregnant with your daughter. That is uh, very hard because you right. want to give all of your you want to be emotionally available as much as possible to the newborn, but when you're dealing with the expiring son, this is, uh, I mean, that's very hard. Yeah, yeah. In fact, uh, you know, she breastfeed Zane for about a year, and. And Zeta wasn't very long at all because of all the stress she was under. Right. Uh, only a few months, probably first three months, and then then we had to you know switch her to formula. Right. Now, how did it come about, Trent, that you adopted these two boys from foster care after you say years after Zane's death? How did that uh, How did that come about? Well. Three years after he passed away, <clears throat> my daughter was four, and I think we were we were healing a bit more, and and thought but you, you can't have more because of the genetic risk, right? Yeah, yeah. So it was a it would be a twenty five percent chance, and and uh, and right up my my ex wife she she was uh she had such terrible pregnancies that I actually got a vasectomy. Not not really knowing that Zane was, or that I was a carrier for for a terrible disease, but after Zeta was born, I had a vasectomy because of because we were going to have any more kids. Um, so yeah, the the process of reversing the vasectomy and then a twenty five percent chance of bat disease, we just thought that would it's not a good don't want to play that well, combined game, with the know? very difficult pregnancies too, right? Yeah. So we thought that we we started foster caring and and through the through the foster care system you can adopt children from you know broken homes. It's like a like a test drive, right? <laughs> yeah. So we my my son, uh, he's 11 now. We got him when he was 2. Um his uh his birth mom was was a teenager. And she was sexually assaulted and she still had the baby, but she was too young to want to be a mom. So she decided to, to um, have him adopted. And then we ended up adopting him when he was three. Um, now that, that was going to be it actually. That was, we had a, we had a boy and a girl again. I mean, of course we always have Zane, but you know what I mean? <laughs> right. Among uh, so, the living. Yes. Yeah. And Tice was kind of a, he's my, my youngest. And we got him when he was a day old. Um, his, his birth mom came in as a, as a meth, meth addict. So they, they took custody away right, right away from her. We had him ever since. Wow, you are, uh, boy, you're taking some risks there. I'm, I'm hoping it's working out. <laughs> well, I, 
I've done some research. I don't know a lot a lot about the effects of meth on children. Well, um, even the genetics, right? Yeah, yeah. He's you know he's going to be prone to be you know addiction, obviously. Well, maybe, maybe, but I'm just thinking in terms of uh, trauma. We know that that has epigenetic effects. Uh, Addiction may have epigenetic effects. Deferral of gratification may have, well, almost certainly does have some genetic basis and so on. So, and I applaud the courage, and I'm sure that these kids are in a great home, but I mean, it's not like you completely avoided genetic risk by uh, doing this foster care stuff. Right. We did it for four years, and we actually. At the end, the last part of our foster foster carrier, we had a Down syndrome kid um, ended up dying in the hospital. Oh, really? And then I, then I told, yeah. After how long? Uh, how long did you have with the Downs kid? I think we had him a few months. He actually was just a terrible story. He was actually abused. He was thrown against a wall by by somebody in the family, and. Is that what and caused his, his uh, early death? Oh, is that what caused the – no, it's not what caused the Downs. Downs is genetic, right? Yeah, Downs is genetic, but the, the reason why they were taken away is because of the, his home condition obviously was terrible, where he was abused that way. Here is a Downs kid being abused by some terrible people. Threw him against a wall, and his head his, – his brain was – or his head was so big because his um, – his brain grew because it was uh, what do you call it? I'm missing the word here. It was swelling. Right. So it, it he almost looked like he he looked like an alien kind of. It was just completely sad. So, but a lot of Down's Down syndrome kids have trouble with their heart, and he had to have surgery for his heart, and he ended up passing away in the hospital. Oh, um, so under the knife, tra- so to speak. Yeah. Well, he made it through the surgery, but he died a few days later. Wow. But after that, I we were back at Riley, back where Zane was for all those times back in 2005. Right. And then I told her, I was like, I can't do this anymore. I said, I can't take these. It's just. I think you guys took so hard. quite a number of bullets for the goodness there. Yeah. And then we, we just quit doing foster care because it's. You got kids. I mean, you can't be going through this kind of hell when you have kids to raise unless, you know, like it's something you have no choice about. And here, at least you have a choice, right? That's what I was explaining to her at the time. Like, we have three that we need to take care of now. And how are your uh, two boys doing? Well, they're doing well, actually. They're a lot of fun. (laughs) Good. But yeah, um, they're a handful sometimes. But. In what way? Let's see. Uh, well, Trevin is on on ADHD medicine, which I can get into later if you want. Um, which I, I'm really not for medicine with children. I'm actually quite against it, but during our separation, um, my ex and the doctor prescribed medicine to him against my wishes, which they don't need my permission to do it. And this your uh, they just need one parent. Yeah. And that was uh, your ex-wife and her doctor put him on, which you didn't have any say over, right? 
Yeah. And what symptoms were they attempting to, quote, treat? Well, any any kind of boy type of behavior. Can't sit still. Um, doesn't listen to the teacher in class, that kind of crap. I'm going to assume he's in government schools. Yes. And a lot of female teachers there. Yep. And how's his relationship with his mom? He's a he's a great great kid and he helps out a lot and so I think it's pretty good from what I can gather. We've been separated for four years. Um, but the the medicine I, I had I actually had to be defeated on be well here's why, because I in in court they tried to use it against me that I didn't give him his medicine. Oh, so it's a pretty ugly divorce situation, is that right? It was at the time. It's 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 better now. But then yeah, the the lawyer the lawyer walked in and pretty much said I was a terrible father and um wouldn't wouldn't give him the prescribed medicine that he needs. Yeah, no, there's a lot of people who still think it's medicine, right? Yeah. And then uh, I was arguing with my lawyer about it because he's saying, you don't give him his medicine? So no, he doesn't need it. <laughs> but luckily, I had a, I had a judge that, that was sympathetic with, with me and said it was reasonable for the father to disagree. So I was pretty lucky with having a decent judge. Yeah, that is uh, that is lucky. And what was it that um, triggered the divorce? Do you think? Well, she was she was very depressed, obviously, during the time more so than than I was after Zane passed away, and it it got pretty bad for a couple of years where she couldn't get out of bed for. A long time for many hours, she would lay in bed. Um, she had a lot of anxiety, and which is kind of, kind of ironic that what's happening to me now is what's happening. What happened to her back then, where she she was staying at home with with Zeta, my daughter, and I was out working. And I think I think that was therapeutic for me. I was I just opened my business and just started, and I just worked, worked, worked. You know, 70, 60, 70 hours a week. Well, so, that may have helped you, but it sure didn't help your marriage, right? No. No, working that much wasn't worth it. Um, but I think I was, I think I was escaping actually. Sure. I mean, that's what, that's what men do, right? Yeah. Yeah. If I'm sad, I'll work. So, I just think we, we communicate poorly. There's nothing really we, – we, we communicated poorly. It was We didn't cheat on each other. We didn't have affairs or anything like that. Um, but your marriage followed I, Zane into the grave, right? Yeah. I had a lot of resentment for that last year. I was very angry. Um, oh, at your wife? Yeah. Yeah. Why is that? And I, I did, I did move out. No, but why um, were you angry with Joy? I, I just, I blamed her for 
um, for my career. And, you know, I quit doing the business just because of the work schedule. Like I was telling you about earlier, it was, it was too much for me to, to be at home and, and work that much. And then, um, I just didn't, I didn't feel like she supported me very much, even though I was, I was busting my butt all those years so she could stay at home, you know, I didn't feel very appreciated, I guess. Right. And then, but then when that ended and that, and my, you know, I, I worn out and, and started work. I mean, she actually told me that it was time to get off my ass and get a job, <laughs> which is a, which was kind of her at the time, but she was probably right. <laughs> And how long after your business closed, <clears throat> how long were you unemployed for? I went right into the job. So I kept some some of my clients and then kept working part-time. Um, Wait, so your, wife, your wife who couldn't get out of bed for quite some time said that you should stay active? Yeah. <laughs> it seems like a, a, bit, a bit of a contradiction, wouldn't you say? Right. Um, I should lie she, in bed. You have to get a job. <laughs> yeah, I mean that 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 hurt me so bad just because I I've, I felt like giving my all so far and allowed even us to adopt kids and for her to hurt a foster kids too. Now, was it something that she wanted more than you, or was it sort of equal, or what? I wasn't that interested in fostering. I, I, I was really just interested in getting, having a son, you know, mm. uh, I, I wanted to have a son. So, and after Zane died, I still wanted, still wanted that. Right. And I'm grateful I have, have these guys now. Right. <clears throat> Which is a, you know, if, if, if Zane wouldn't have passed away, I wouldn't have them. So it's, it's kind of a strange <laughs> feeling, you know. What happened, Trent, in terms of processing the grief of Zane dying? Uh, at the time? At the time of the death? Or? or after, of course, right. Well, I mean, you had time to prepare, but specifically after. Nothing's real till it happens in some ways, right? Well, well it, the feeling was that has died with them. Sorry, the feeling was that who? Part of your part of you died. Part of your your dreams, your aspirations for your for your child. And like you never got to talk, you never got to all those kind of milestones that 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 we think of as parents that are so riding the bike the first time, first steps. You know, a lot, all those things are, he never got to do. So part, part, part of you thinks about that a lot. And as say it gets older and kids, kids her own age, kids, his own age that in our, in our friend group, they get older. You know, he, it's hard not to think about that. Think about what he might be like if, if he, if he didn't have bad disease. Did I answer that? All of this seems like a way to not grieve, in my humble opinion. My question is, what did you do to grieve? Because if the thoughts are returning 13 years later, I won't say obsessively, but continually, I think it's probably fair to say, 
then it seems to me that some kind of lesson has not yet been learned. In other words, he's coming back to your mind because he wants to tell you something, but it's something that's hard to hear. Well, I mean, how does one grieve? You cry? Of course I cried, but I don't know. I guess I don't know how to answer that. Mm-hmm. I feel like I did did grieve at the time, but then I think I stopped it um, when I started working again. Right. And how did your relationship with your wife go after the death of your son? Well, the first tragedy can bring you closer together. It doesn't, I mean, I know that a lot of marriages found her pretty hard with the death of a child, but don't think it has to be that way. I mean, tragedy can bring people closer together. Initially, I thought that was that we were we were going to be completely bonded, and um, actually, we we went to the conference with the the, the bad disease conference to kind of learn more about the disease, and we more we met families, and that was really those were really bonding moments that we have made lifelong friends now. So their parents, so our relationship felt like at the time it was we were we were really tight close um but I, I think after we started getting involved in fostering i i started retreating um from the marriage i think i started getting involved in um exercising and working out and and you know i, I play volleyball recreationally so i i started started enjoying doing those things so when you got the fostering which is a time when logically you'd spend more time at home, you spent less time at home. Yeah, sometimes sometimes I would, yes. Why do you think that is? Or was? Well, I work from home, so I wanted to not be at home <laughs> sometimes. That was the... Uh, I really, I really never pinpointed why why I was doing that, but you know, I, well, well, I think if you can pinpoint think, that, yeah, I, then you may have some relief from these thoughts of your son. My wife, my ex wife, was kind of hard to deal with sometimes, and, and some of the depression hard to deal with someone while they're in, depressed. Okay, yeah, now the depression, was it kind of like rubber bones in terms of like she just kind of went limp, didn't want to get out of bed or didn't want to participate? Yeah, but then she, she'd have these lows and then she'd have these high highs where she'd, she'd want to do all this stuff, you know what I mean? So we, uh, we made some really poor decisions during that time after Zane died. Like we remodeled our house and spent a bunch of money and um, – a year after he passed away, and we went into major debt because of that. Right. And I think that's we were both. Well, let's find something to ease the pain of him dying. Yeah. No. I um. I know that. I remember a friend of mine whose wife had a miscarriage just called me up and said, "We're painting the house. Want to help?" I'm like, "Yeah, I'll, I'll come help. We'll talk about it." Right, and then there's the other the other problem is you really can't. It's hard to talk to other people about it after a while. 
it, it seems like people are uncomfortable, even your own friends, right. when you want to talk about it. Right. Talk about your son. Talk talk about your son passing away, and and, and maybe they're probably thinking, why don't they just get over it? I don't know if they're thinking that, but. Now, with your wife and her depression and her uh, her ups and downs, I don't want to put words in your mouth, So, but I'll just be frank about what I'm thinking, Trent. It's like you have to deal with the death of your son and also the depression of your wife. Like it's kind of like a double burden. Yeah, and and then so who's I was helping running you? my own business. Yeah, I was running a business too, and I remember going to because I, I make videos. I remember taking my kids to video shoots, and they were very young, you know, just because you know she couldn't get up or wouldn't take care of them, so I had to. Yeah, so that happened a number of times where the kids. I mean, I'm not, I'm not really watching them because I was working. So it was, it was a, it was a tough time. Right? When my nephew was born in 2013, that's when I had a, I had a panic attack on the toll road. Um, we were at a service area. I just felt like every. Oh, I think someone else is calling. Sorry. It's all right. My, sorry about that. Uh, where was I? 2013, your cousin is born. You're having a panic attack. Oh, yeah. My nephew was born. Your nephew, and, sorry. Yeah. I just felt that the whole thing was crushing on top of me, like the whole world. And this was during the time of your divorce, of, is that right? Well, that was a year before. A year before, sorry. Yeah. So that's when I, I, I started taking... Um, I started taking a step back on my business and doing less, and then I ended up stopped doing it altogether in 2015. But yeah, our, our our divorce process started right at the end of 2014. How long did that go on for? We were separated for two years. Then. Oh, before? Oh no, after? Well, well, yeah, okay. I moved out in September of 2014, and then. We were divorced in November of 2016. Wow. It's a long time. Yeah. Were you hoping to solve or fix it, or what was the delay? Well, at, at first, I, I I think I just needed a... We had done... I, what I... <clears throat> sorry. We had counseling for a while, for about two years. From 2012 to 2014, and I, I didn't think it really helped. To be honest, it just seemed like um, it seemed like everything was my fault. You know, <laughs> was it a female counselor? Oh, two of them was. One of them was a male. Yeah. Female in group preference can be a strong force of nature sometimes. Yeah, but the yeah the guy felt like he was kind of feminine too. So, because yeah. <laughs> one time he told me he's like, "Why don't you just stop playing volleyball?" That's what he said. Because I played once a week, 
said, why would I stop playing? It's only once a week. It's my outlet. It's, you know. I bet you spend a lot less time playing volleyball than your wife spent not getting out of bed. Right. I only play once a week. So <laughs> one night a week, it was, it was really therapeutic for me. It still is. Sure. Volleyball is a great, great sport. I must tell you. Oh, we do play? <laughs> I do. Well, not as often as I'd like. I oh, met my you? wife playing volleyball, but uh, anytime oh, I'm near sand oh, nice. and there's a net, I'm all over it. Yeah, me too. I play in leagues uh, all around the lakes. and I love playing outside, but I, love, I like playing indoors. I just love the game, yeah. yeah. That's right. So, yeah, I grew up, my whole family played, my sister and my brother. So we grew up playing in clubs and my sister played in college, so... Trent, do you think that if Zane had lived, your marriage would have survived? I've, I've asked that. I've asked myself that at lunch. I would say probably yes. But you may not have adopted... Well, you may have, I guess, you wanted the sun, right? Yeah. I, You know, at the time when I had the vasectomy, I, I didn't think we were going to have any more kids, so I thought we were done. Yeah. Well, that was before all that stuff happened. But, yeah. So how much is your dead child costing your relationship with your living children? I'm sorry, I missed your question. It, How much is your dead child costing your relationship with your living children? I think lately it's, um, it, I feel like I'm in a fog sometimes and they're talking to me and I'm not really listening. I'm just in a, I'm too focused on the past or other things. And I, I'm having a hard time focusing lately. Why do you think now? 13 years later. I mean, I know it, it's not like it wasn't there and now it is, but I assume that it's, you're saying it's on the up, right? Like now you say you can't yeah. stop thinking about his death, like there's more, right? Yeah, then it was, then I started thinking about, well, why did we get divorced? And, you know, I, I start focusing on that stuff kind of thing, things too. It, it, it usually happens when, because I have them half the time, I have my kids, so we split 50-50. Um, I always think that when they're gone, how I regret being divorced. You know what I mean? Do you because, think there's anything you could have done different to not be divorced? Yes. And what's I mean, that? I think I shouldn't have, I shouldn't have moved out. Right. I felt like our relationship was so toxic and, and I couldn't. But if I your relationship was toxic, anymore. how would staying have made it non-toxic? I don't know. Or to put it another way, what was exactly toxic about your relationship at the time that you moved out? Um, I I just felt like I was a uh, I was her, her work helper. Um, I was a, a person. To a what do helper? Things. Like a work helper because she started her own business. At, oh, okay. That time. Oh, so you, uh, yeah, a woman starts her own business and the man pours all of his energy into helping her make it successful when she didn't do the same for him. 
Right. So I, I heard would, that story I before. I make the deliveries. It's a furniture. I should have a furniture store. So I, had, so I had to go make all these deliveries. And, um, and I, I was still working full time and I was doing my part time video work. Wait. So you were doing the deliveries on her business? Why didn't she pay someone yes. to do those deliveries? Yeah, she paid me. <laughs> uh, why she didn't? I, at the time, she was thinking, or we, we were probably thinking that. I eventually just quit doing it. But at the time, she was thinking, I can't afford to pay anybody, so you should do it. <laughs> Which is a pretty good sign that the business is not viable. Yeah, she was just starting. So it was the first year. Yeah. Did the business end up lasting for her? She still has it today, but. Um, but what? That, well, what's going on with with her is a a carousel of of men going through the house. Oh no! Since I've left. Oh no! So you guys adopted two kids, got divorced. One of them's on meds, and there's a parade of boyfriends through the house half the time. Well, there was, there's been three since, since I've left and one was pretty quickly. And that's why, that's why I thought we'd never get back together because I don't think my bed was even cold yet. And there was somebody already in there and we were, we were married 12 years at that time. Do you know much about these guys? The, yeah, the first two were not. We're not good guys at all. I mean, well, of course they I weren't. Them up. She's a single mom. Of course they weren't. Yeah, they had records. No, oh, yes, pretty, but the big problem extensive. is you not giving ADHD meds to your kid. Having guys around with records around a little girl, that's fine, and little boys. But the big problem, apparently, is you not giving crap non-medicine to your boy. Yeah, and I feel like I was almost forced to, like my my custody was on the line if I didn't do it, you know. Why is she – records? Yeah. What? Like what kind of records are we talking here? The first guy – the first two the first two guys had felonies. Oh, uh, my one, God. One was for B&E. The second one was so long that – I was just, you know, it was DUIs and um, there's a lot of assaulting other people, assaulting women. So your ex-wife um, is bringing criminals, like your ex-wife is bringing open criminals or ex-criminals around your kids. Yes. And does the court not have anything to say about that? I I suppose I could have fought it, but. Um, Family court takes the stuffing right out of you, they, right? They 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 don't intervene. But they only intervene when it's the father, I guess. Yeah, yeah. Well, I'm, I think that's true. Now, did you do you have any sense of why she would end up stooping so low? She has a she has a major problem with being alone. Obviously. Wow. She can't stand to be alone. And and I think it's her her way of of dealing with 
all the crap that she went through. Uh, no, it's not. Uh, that's 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 a very charitable explanation, my friend. But no, it's not. Now, was there any sign? Thinking back to when you were first dating, when you first met her, was there any sign that she might have these kinds of potential habits in her? As far as like being alone? Or well, yeah, these the kinds depression? of bad decisions, uh, being alone, this instability, this uh, selfishness. You know, she's got to know that's not good for her kids, right? So, yeah. But she's doing yeah. it because she doesn't want to be alone and she's willing to sacrifice her children's peace of mind and potential safety in order to get what she wants. So I'm talking about this kind of selfishness and bad decision-making and so on. Was there any sign of that when you first met her when you were dating her? Well, there was there were signs of, of her being selfish that I pretty much ignored. I and think. what were they? Um, she was, she's more about what she, what she was doing and we wanted to be around her friends. You know, she didn't really want to meet my friends. She kind of shunned my friends. Um, Did she end up uh, triggering your disengagement from your friends after you started dating seriously or you got married? Exactly. They, oh, yeah. Yeah, you can't have friends around. Otherwise, your need, friends are going to say, she's crazy. Right. And that's why... Always beware, and sorry, this is general advice. Always beware a woman who tries to separate you from your friends. They are up to no good, and nothing good will come of it. And most of the time, while we were married, if I ever played volleyball or did anything with my family, she was immediately upset with me. Sure. Yeah. No, this is uh, people, this this is uh, not wanting you to have support, not wanting you to have relationships. It's because she's planning to go nuts on you and doesn't want anyone to warn you. Yeah, because I actually came across across uh, you when I was going through the MGTOW things. I think you talked to Paul Elam. Oh yeah, a couple of years ago. That's how I came. That's how I came across your stuff. Right. So, who trained you to be in the service of crazy women? <laughs> we may need to go a little further back than two thousand five, my friend. Okay. So you're asking about my dad or? I'm asking about who trained you to not ostracize selfish women. I'm not sure. I can't. can't Well, let me ask you this. Did your family of origin know anything about the selfish side of your girlfriend slash fiance wife to be my sister my sister was well aware and my sister's very honest and, and what did she say she said over. don't do it yeah i was like you shouldn't marry her she's she's really selfish and did anyone it's else in your family her. know about this or talk to you about it no wait know about it or talk to you about it or both? No, no, I'm sorry. No one, no one talks to me about it. Is that because they didn't know that she was selfish? Or maybe they didn't want to, at least my, my dad would, would never say anything bad about her. Why? 
Doesn't he love you? Yes, but that's not how he is. He doesn't. He wouldn't. Oh, he prefers his own comfort to his children's happiness and safety. Seems kind of selfish to me. Yeah, I mean, he kind of just goes along with anything that's happening, you know? He's not really a... You know, he's kind of like, things will work out kind of thing. That's kind of his... Except when they don't. Platitudes, you know? Yeah, but things haven't worked out so well, right? No. At least um, as you're sitting right now. But... But I knew that, and I still pursued her, and... So how pretty was she? Uh, Like now or then? No, back then. <laughs> now? Well, now don't count. You've seen behind the mask. <laughs> well, I thought for me, she was she was probably eight, you know? And where were you at the time? I'm about there. Probably eight, yeah. Oh. So why would you need to appease her if you're both the same level of attractiveness? I thought she was a challenge. At the How time. so? I, I pursued her. How was she a challenge? Well, she back then she was such a bubbly personality and full of life and laughter, and so I I gravitated towards that. Were you not that way at the time? I mean, now you come across like a bit of a lead balloon, but were you more peppy when you were younger? <laughs> Do I sound that bad? Oh, my God. Oh, you, you, you listen. <laughs> we'll fix it by the end of the conversation, my friend. But you got to listen back to this, man. You are like energy vampire dude at the moment. I'm not kidding you. Like if I didn't come into the conversation with an excess of energy, I'd be one crumpled piece of dust fluff on the floor. <laughs> you know, you, you come from for the honesty, right? Try I'll be frank. Size. Oh, I, I'm not being boring, am I? <laughs> No, it's not that you're boring. It's just that it's monotone and it's laborious and it's slow. It's like, you know, it's like trying to go for a walk with somebody carrying a lead cow. It's just tiring. No, you're not boring. I mean, your story is fascinating and I have great sympathy for what you've gone through. But it's like trying to play patty cake with somebody who's got shell shock. Sorry? I don't give energy to a story like that. How do you give? Oh, now now you're blaming the story. <laughs> okay. No, no, no. <sighs> Let's not blame the story. Let's not blame Zane. Uh, I agree. It, uh, I you agree. know, it's certainly not his fault, right? No. <laughs> okay. So <laughs> let's not try that particular strategy, if that's all right no, with you. let's get back on track. <laughs> right. Yes. <laughs> so were you lower energy back then than she was, or has sort of life ground you down to some degree over the last while, or what? Yeah, I I think I was, it's it's grounded me down, obviously. Yeah. Um, All right, now tell me about your mom. Yeah, I was lo- I was a lot more peppy and full of life than than I am now. I mean, it's 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 just obvious and right, and right. I know it too. So tell me a bit about your mom.
Um, where to start? Uh, she's a stay-at-home mom. Uh, she worked. Uh, I have an older sister, older brother, like I was telling you, and she stayed home for eight years. My dad worked. That was in the seventies. Um, and she started working when I went to school. Um, she's not very. I would say she's not very uh, emotional, emotionless, I would say. She doesn't show much love or didn't really hug much. Um, she did use the wooden spoon, though. And uh, how often did that happen? Oh, sorry, I hit the mic. Uh, how often did that happen? I would say. Possibly monthly, probably. And um, how hard was it and how difficult was it? Uh, it was welt, so it was hard. Right. And equally distributed among the siblings? Yes, they've, they all, we all got it, yes. My dad didn't really, uh, I only remember him spanking me maybe once or twice in my life. And why did your mother beat you with a wooden spoon? And don't give me this like discipline stuff, right? We're beyond that. But uh, why do you think she did it? She she doesn't like kids. She what? She doesn't like children. She doesn't like children? Yeah. And why do you say that? Because, yeah. My my kids now will stay with her occasionally, and I, I can just tell how upset and frustrated she is she gets with them. Okay, so why, why does like she get frustrated with point. kids? Sorry to interrupt. Why does she get frustrated with kids? In other words, what do you think she says to herself? Because frustration is when you have an expectation and there's a collision, right? So the, when people are perpetually frustrated, it's because they have an expectation that is continually being violated and they won't adjust their expectations, right? Like if you have this expectation that children should be quiet when they're home, well, guess what? Unless yes. you beat them into a coma, they're not going to be quiet when they're home. Like if you have an expectation that as a parent, you should be able to sit down with your kids going, dad, 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 dad. Well, that's an unreasonable expectation, right? If you have an expectation that you should get a solid night's sleep with a newborn, well, that may be an unrealistic expectation. So if you won't adjust your expectations, you end up in a state of perpetual frustration. So I'm just curious what, yes. what was her expectations that weren't being met by the very existence of children? Was everything we do, if we would wrestle or if we would be loud or be boys or anything, any of that kind of thing, she, she would get upset about. Right. Right. And so she would so, get angry. So it's the same thing with my kids now. Sorry? It's the same thing with my kids, and now I can see how she was when we were kids. Right. And it's the same thing, yeah, same thing with your kids now, right? But she's never yeah, hit in them, fact, I assume. No, but we got an argument this past week about it, and that was her solution, is that I should beat them. 
And then I was like, no, I'm not going to beat them. Uh, so we got in a huge argument about it. Wow. So she's pretty much doubled down to what she did to you as kids, that she thinks it was a good thing. Yes. Wow. And even now, she's 75 now, you know? So probably not a lot of change on the horizon. <laughs> no. And have you ever talked to her about what you thought and felt around her as a child? Uh, no. I've never talked to her about it. Why do you think? I'm not really sure why. I sure you are. Sure you are. Of course you are. Which is, if I said, I've got your mom on the phone right now, why don't you tell her now? What would you feel? Well, I, I think what I really think is, especially boys, she doesn't like. She doesn't like the way boys act, the way boys wrestle, the way boys play. Um. And I don't know if if my sister felt the same way or not. Well, because you know she was well, a girl, and she was a I first don't born. I don't understand what it means to say I don't like boys. You decided to become a mom, and you had some fucking boys. Like it's a little bit too late to say, yes, well, sure. I don't like it. You find a way to like yeah, it. They're, they're your children. Yeah. So I'm not quite sure. I get the well. I don't like boys. It's like, well, then give them to someone else or learn how to like them. Right? Yeah. I I never understood why we were um, such a hassle for her. Right. And we had a lot of fun, my brother and I. We had, we had lots of property. About, you know, two acres. We lived out in the, out in the sticks. There's lots to do, lots of farmland and woods and lakes and such. So we explored a lot. Do you think she's a cruel person? Yes. Yes, I believe she is. Because sometimes people are frustrated because they have bad ideas or bad thoughts. Other times people hold on to bad ideas or bad thoughts in order for themselves to be frustrated so that they can act in an aggressive manner and call themselves justified. Yeah, like whatever my dad did to her because they got divorced and when I was in high school. No, she she'll still bring it up sometimes that oh he did X Y and Z and, and I tell her like I don't want to hear this anymore like it's done and it's over with you need to move on oh she's still complaining about your dad yeah this is almost thirty years ago now and how how did they react when they learned that your marriage was on the rocks. They were happy, actually. What? 
What do you mean? My mom was. Why was she happy? Oh, because she's a cruel person? Because she thought that, that, well, she didn't like, she didn't like her. She didn't like your wife? Yes. Did she ever tell you before your marriage was on the rocks that she didn't like your wife? Well, she knew because of all the, the Facebook bickering and fighting and uh, texting battles. Between I knew your mom and your wife? I was too, yeah. Now, but when was the earliest that so your I mother mean, said that she didn't like your wife? Oh, I that's the first I ever heard of it when I told her that. I mean, that she told me in person. Your mom told you in person? Yes. That, well, actually, I, I asked her if I could stay at her house because, and then she pretty much uh, spent the whole entire time telling me about what, you know, my ex did to her during the whole time that they've had a relationship. And what did your ex do to your mom? Well, all that, well, she didn't pay attention to me at this party or, you know, all this kind of small stuff. You know, Facebook fighting or pictures or why didn't you invite me to this? Why didn't you invite me to that? I mean. Wow. Mom sounds like a desperately petty person. But how much do you think your mom's aggression towards your wife contributed to problems in your marriage? Well, it did. It didn't help, obviously. No, how much uh, do you think it contributed? She, like a percentage? Yeah. Because your mom wanted you to get divorced. And manipulative people can often find a way to get what they want, right? I'd say it's, I'd say it's pretty low. Um, but it, it just made things awkward around family time when we... We do holiday things. <clears throat> and did your mom, sorry, did your ex-wife ever complain to you about your mom? Yeah. Well, my mom never, even though she did all that stuff, to, they did that to each other. She never said anything to me about it. Wait, who, who never said to you? My, my mom. I'm sorry, my mom. Right, but did your wife ever complain to you about your mom? Yes. And what did she say? She had, you know. The same thing that I just told you. Yeah, she acts like she doesn't care. Um, she's very cold. Right. Um, and how was your mom and how was your dad when Zane died? Like the last 20 days of his life, a lot of the grandparents were in the house with us. So I, I don't really know how they were. Um, I mean, everybody was upset, obviously, but I mean, actually, I wasn't really paying attention to what other people were doing. No, but they should but, be there to help you, right? Yes, they were there to help out wherever. You know, they they drop over meals, or they would uh, they would take my daughter and take her out, you know, watch her for a little bit. Right. Well, I think I have enough information. I'm going to tell you what I think, which may be complete nonsense, just so you understand, right? 
just some guy on the internet. Okay. So this may be complete nonsense, but I'll tell you what I think, and then you can tell me if it makes any sense. All right? All right. Okay. There's never any way to make the death of a child okay. I know that. You know that better than, than I do. But here's the thing to do with this kind of tragedy, in my humble opinion. You have to try and find a way to get as much possible good out of the horror that has occurred in your life. I mean, when I got cancer, out of nowhere. The question is, how can you get the greatest possible good out of something like that? Now, that never makes it okay that your son died, but you can at least, I think, get closure by saying that I got as much wisdom and security and safety and positivity and, and good stuff out of this terrible tragedy as humanly possible. And that's the best we can do with tragedy. It doesn't mean don't grieve. It doesn't mean don't be shocked and horrified and, and appalled and, and cry and, and scream and groan. It doesn't mean any of that. It just means that the only way to get as much good out of this is to try and wring as much positivity out of something like this as humanly possible, right? Now, that had some potential insofar as you adopted these two boys and there was some potential to get something good in terms of, well, my biological son died, but now I have these two adopted boys, which kind of came out of that. And if my son could speak to me in spirit form and in, in soul form, if my son could speak to me, he would be say, he would say, you did the very best with my death. That is possible. You planted as many flowers, as many opportunities, as many possibilities, as much positivity as possible on my grave. You tried to turn as much tragedy into hope and possibility as humanly possible. Now, this is an old Christian idea, actually, that I remember learning about when I was a kid, and you can read more about it in the Screwtape Letters by C.S. Lewis. If the devil tempts you with greed, be more austere. If the devil tempts you with riches, spend less. If the devil tempts you with lust, be more chaste. So try and turn the temptation to, to despair into a dedication to hope. Try and turn the temptation to, for a living death to a commitment to live as much as humanly possible, as deeply and as richly as humanly possible, so that your son, in your mind's eye, can say, I wish I hadn't died, but at least I didn't die in vain. I wish I didn't have to die. But at least my death has caused a great eruption of positivity and love and connectedness on the part of my parents. They are honoring my death with living greater and deeper and richer lives. And I think, in her mind's eye, that is what the dead most desire in our history. And I'm not even remotely going to try and compare my experiences to yours but I did have an unusual number of friends who died when I was a boy. One of my friends said, well, didn't die, but he is uh, probably dead now. One of my friends did a flip when I was in boarding school into a pool, hit his head, went unconscious, wasn't noticed, noted for a while, wasn't noticed for a while. And by the time they got him back to life, uh, his brain had been half destroyed. And he was gone for a while. He came back, but he couldn't run. He couldn't speak. And it was 
I remember wow. trying to have so many conversations with him after this because he was such a funny guy and I just couldn't go past what had died within him. I couldn't get past that roadblock of what was gone. I had another friend very close. We It was the first guy I connected with when we first came to Canada. One of the kindest, most curious, gentlest, most compassionate, most empathetic. I learned a lot about empathy from this boy, an amazing kid. And I, I was his, we were best friends. We just, we clicked. We, I remember very clearly, like it was in grade six that we would walk around all of the recess and all of the lunch and just having the most amazing conversations that it took me years to have those kinds of conversations again. And I was pretty lonely because I had just come from a new, uh, from a country to a new country and it was pretty feral where I was, pretty bad neighborhood. Not terrible, but but fairly bad. A lot of rough kids. And he was just a really cool guy. And we had our sleepovers and we had great conversations. And he just didn't come to school one day. And I found out sometime later that he just died in his sleep, just had some damn heart issue that I had another friend who I used to go dirt biking with all the time. And we were we were pretty close. But he was succumbing to a kind of darkness that came out of the family, which we don't have to get into here. And we ended up not having a friendship because he would get progressively more aggressive and bullying. And I pushed back against that as I am want to do. But one day we're biking home. I think I've told this story before, but I'll mention it here. I think it's relevant. One day we're biking home um, from dirt biking in the woods. It's nighttime. And there's a big rock. In the on the sidewalk ahead of me, and I swerved to avoid it, and he almost crashed into me. And we had this, you know how these, you know this, right? You've had conflicts with people that have been brewing for a while. It just one little thing just sets it up, sets it off. And he was like, "Hey, man, you cut me off!" And he was very aggressive. And I was like, "Damn it, I've had enough of this." And I said, "No, you were tailgating." And he's like, "No, you swerved." You cut me off. And I'm like, you should not have been biking so close to me that when I swerved to avoid a rock, we can bike back and have a look at the rock if you want. When you when I swerve to avoid a rock and you almost crash into me, you're tailgating. You're supposed to leave two car lengths distance in a car. You can at least leave two bike lengths difference, right? And we just had this thing, right? He just went nuts. He went nuts. And I was like, at some point, like he's just screaming at the top of his lungs, you know, and it, it was his life. It didn't have anything to do with me. It was his life and his mom and all this kind of stuff. And But he, was, right. he was focused on me. And I don't know, I'm biking home like I'm chased by Cerberus with a bell-shaped hairdo. And I'm like throwing my bike down the stairs and fumbling with my keys to get into my building. And he's coming to me. It's like a horror movie. I get into the building. I close the door just before he gets there. I go up and I can see him. Like I look over my balcony. I can see the guy screaming, throwing his bike around, just went nuts. And I was like, that was it. Like I couldn't, like you can't have a relationship after that. And then not too long after that, I read in the newspaper, he died. And he died. He died on a motorbike. And you know how he died on a motorbike? He was tailgating. Truck stopped, and he didn't. He didn't leave enough room. <sighs> Dead. So wow. I can't bring any of these people back to life any more than you can bring your son back to life. But what I can do is I can try and stuff myself full of the life 
that was robbed from them or that they gave up through lack of wisdom. They got much less so that I, in a sense, can commit to much more. And a lot of my ambition arises out of the grave, either explicit or implicit, of people's physical or spiritual deaths. I have known a lot of people in my life who have taken this incredible gift of life and squandered it or given it away or had it taken away, as your son did, through god-awful happenstance. And what is taken from them cannot be given back to them, but it can be further grown within you. And if I were to imagine this soliloquy trend, I would say something like this, that your son Zane would say, Dad, I didn't have a chance for life. I barely even had consciousness. I couldn't speak. I went blind. I decayed into nothingness. I barely had a bubble of life in my short time on this planet. But what are you learning from my death? How much commitment to your relationships do you have? I am never going to grow up. I am never going to go through puberty or learn to ride a bike or drive a car or have sex or have children or get old. I'll never have any of these things. You still have them. What utility are you making of them? How much are you committed to living deeply and richly as a result of seeing how little life I was given by the fates? I don't get to have a relationship with you, Dad. How's your relationship with my siblings? I don't get to cuddle on your lap. I don't get to laugh with you. I don't get to have you teach me volleyball. And I can live with that. I can live with living in this tiny grave for eternity. As long as I know that you're learning from my death and fully committing to life and connecting with the people around you. Because right now it feels a little bit like I died in vain, like nobody learned a damn thing from my death. That you and mom split up, that you're distracted from your own children, that what, what did I die for? And there's never anything that makes my death acceptable or positive. But I sure would like to know that people extracted as much life out of my death as humanly possible. That what was minus infinity for me can at least be a plus thousand for other people. That they cannot bring me to life, but they can bring themselves to life. That they cannot take me out of the grave, but they don't have to follow me into the grave. That I can't ever walk above the ground, but why are you not stepping through the clouds? Why are you not? Do you feel like you're honoring me? By living less powerfully, by living less vitally, by living less connectedly, you're not. That's a terrible thing to be my legacy. It's for you to think of my death rather than your life. For you to think of what can't be changed in your history and what can't be achieved, which is me coming back to life. And that I would stand between you, the memory of me, Dad, that I would stand between you and those in your life, that I would stand between you and your daughter, that I would stand between you and your two sons, that I would stand between you and joy, that I would stand between you and vitality, is a horrible legacy for me to have. The last thing that I would ever want, ever, Dad, is to stand between you and happiness. I would like for you to escape the grave. I would like for you to escape and walk away from the graveyard and live the life that I couldn't have. And connect with the people that I can't connect with because I'm dead. That's what I want. 
more than anything. That is what would give my death meaning. But right now I feel you're half with me and half nowhere. And that's the last thing that I would want on my tombstone is he died and took his family with him. It was a murder-suicide, a fate. You have the choice that I'll never have, to live, to connect, to breathe deep and drink deep the elixir of life. And you're not. Why, do you think that you're honoring me? By living half there, half connected, lost in dreams of death and decay? From 13 years ago, that's not what I want. That's not what would honor me. That's not what would honor the tragedy that occurred. Fuck death. Fight death. Live hard. Live deeply. Live powerfully. So that death hangs his head in shame and wins nothing from the future. Wow, that was powerful. <sighs> Isn't that what he'd want? If you die, do you want your children yes. to be miserable for the rest of their lives? Absolutely not. No. No, you don't. Your dying breath should be to bless them with the joy of existence and say, grieve and then live. But if you grieve and grieve, I will feel worse about dying almost than I did. <laughs> about anything else. You want your children to mourn your passing, to celebrate your existence, and to live deeply and richly because you died. Death is the great organizer. Death is the great prioritizer. Hell, if I live forever, I'd do a podcast every month. <laughs> Maybe, right? But we, we, we prioritize and we focus and we're energetic because we're going to fucking die. Right. And you're going to die. And what do you want your kids to get out of your death, Trent? You're going to die one day, Right. Hopefully a long way in the future, maybe tomorrow. But what do you want your kids to learn from your death? How do you want them to live because you died? Because you will. Well, I don't, I don't want them to be with a passionless dad like I feel like I am right now. I, right. I feel like I'm a shell. Well, they won't be because you're dead. Be. But how do you want them <laughs> to embrace life? What do you want their relationship with life to be? after you die? Do you want them 13 years after you die to be obsessing about your death and disconnected from people around no. you? Why not? No, no, no. But, but why would you want, why do you think your son would want that? I don't think he thinks that or wants that. Well, then why are you disrespecting your son by doing the opposite of what he would want? Your son would want you to connect with your children and not use him as a shield or an excuse or a distraction yeah, from connecting with people. I don't think he'd be proud. So you have a problem with connecting with those around you, right? And the way that you... Hide the real reason is to think about your son, Zane, right? What is the real reason that you have difficulty connecting with people? It's not because of Zane. 
because that's not what he would want. The real reason, I, I'm not sure at this time. <laughs> Would you like to know the reason? As I see it. Sure. That's why I'm here. <laughs> you sound very enthusiastic. Fine. <laughs> let me just climb into my nuclear bunker first and put in my la-la-la fingers. <laughs> All right. Well, I'll tell you. You can see if it makes sense. Okay. Because you're still having arguments with your 75-year-old mother about being beaten as a child. So I was, I was listening earlier. You said you couldn't – I think it was a previous caller. You said you couldn't have a real relationship until you dealt with your family. That's correct. If you can't be honest with your family of origin, you can't be honest with every, anyone because they run everything. You know history is everything. You can't be any more honest in your life than your least honest relationship, Trent. You can't be any more honest in your life, life than your least honest relationship. And if you have a relationship in your life where you lie and bicker and hide and obfuscate and chicken out and avoid, that's going to affect everything, everything that you do. Until I told the truth to my mother, all I could do in the world was lie. Hmm. All right. You're thinking about your son dying with you because you refuse to live with your mother to be alive with your mother, to be an adult with your mother, to tell the goddamn truth to your mother. She's just a woman who had sex and gave birth. She's not a goddess. She's not a force of nature. She's right. just a woman who had sex and gave birth. And why can't you tell her the truth? I don't mean abuse her. I don't mean hit her or anything. Just tell her the <laughs> truth. And what kind of example are you setting for your children, Trent? That I you can't stand up to your ex-wife because of the courts, all right? But you don't know what assertiveness you're capable of if you're honest with your mother. Have your children regularly seen you around your mom not being honest? No. Really? They haven't seen you around your mom? Never been in the same room with your mom and your children? Oh, I thought you said they haven't seen me being honest. No, they've seen you being around your mom and you're yes, not being honest with course. her, right? Yes, so they've, they've seen me with, with her, yeah. Yeah, which is the same as seeing you not being honest, right? Because there's things right. you want to say to your mom that are true and honest and powerful and important that you're too scared to say, right? Or maybe you don't realize the importance of saying them. Or maybe now she's old and you have to be careful and take care of that, right? 
Well, no, I mean, that's why we got in the argument, because I told her that I would never do that. And, you know, I. The argument is not about. Fuck. The argument is not about her hitting your children. The argument is about her beating you. That's what I'm talking about. Yeah. That's what I mean by honesty. Maybe no one can stand up to your ex-wife because you're not standing up to your mom. And your kids get that. Women rule, men crumble. Women dominate, men buckle. Women so say jump and men say, how high, honey? I'll do anything you want. Mm -hmm. Just to keep the peace. Just to yeah, break into that's, pieces. That's what I did was my whole life I've been keeping the peace and not sticking up for myself, I guess. How's that working out for you? Well, obviously not great. <laughs> and your daughter is 13, which is why this is yes. coming up now, right? Yeah. Because she is going to be entering into a phase of sexual power. And I'm sorry to be saying this to any other father, but we know that it's true, right? Yes. And so now she's going to great, gain great power over men because of her sexuality. And she does not see an example, I assume, in her life of an adult male or any male rationally and positively being assertive. So what kind of man or what kind of boy is she going to end up dating, Trent? Like the felons my ex went with. Well, she's got that imprinting too, right? So how are you going to keep your precious darling daughter safe from the boys and the men? I, I have to be more assertive. I have to stick up for myself. You do. You have to model to her the behavior of an adult mature male who is able to tell women the truth. By God. I mean, it's not just you, man. I'm, I mean, I'm, I'm playing for mankind here. I'm speaking to Western men as a whole. Tell the truth and shame the devil. If you got issues with your mom, sit down with her and say, hey, mom, I got some issues with you and I'm going to talk about them with you. And she'll, you know, do a whole bunch of dance because women have been corrupted by power, by sexuality, by state resources, by family courts, by lawyers, by the welfare state, by old age pensions, by free health care, all the bullshit that shovels endless resources at the feet of women in hopes of appeasing them. <laughs> Spoiler, they won't be appeased. And so we need men to be honest with women. You got some issues with your mom. She beat you. And she's trying to convince you to beat your children. The fuck are you going to stand up and say, no, 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 no. It's time for you to feel a little discomfort, mom. It's time for me right. to be honest. Yes. She can handle it. I think she can. And she will. She bloody well will. 
And that way, you can stop thinking about your spiritual death in the form of your son's physical death. Come back to life. Your son can't, but you can. And life is truth. You know, if you're not telling the truth, you're not really alive. Because you're in a dictatorship. Well, a dictatorship, as I've called it, right? You're in a dictatorship. But I have the First Amendment. Really? Can you talk to your mom about your... No! <laughs> then you don't have... Like, how about a First Amendment of you? It's too uncomfortable. Oh, she'll be upset. <laughs> right? Well, did yeah. she care about you being upset when she was beating you with a wooden spoon? I think she can handle being a little fucking upset because she didn't mind beating a child with a wooden spoon. Kind of upsetting for you, right? She didn't mind bitching to you about your wife. Kind of upsetting to you, right? Has she right. marched down to your ex-wives and said, get these goddamn felons away from my grandchildren, will you, honey? No. No, she hasn't. So she's fine yes. beating little kids, but she doesn't want to actually confront adults, right? Yeah, real fucking brave, honey. Now, you got to save, you, you, you need to give your sons the example, and you desperately need to give your daughter the example of a positive, assertive male. Because you're kind of ground down a little here, right? Yeah. I, well, there's things you can't do because of I, the family courts, and there's things you can do with your mom. And who knows what's possible after you... I keep... I keep wanting to tell people about the superpowers that come from confronting your parents. Yeah. I mean, this, what I do, the strength of what I do, the, the courage of what I do, the commitment to what it is that I'm doing. I'm one of the bravest people speaking out in the world today. I'm not kidding. Hey, I've got my strengths. I've got my weaknesses. A lack of courage is not one of my weaknesses. You know the topics that I take right. on. You know the issues that I deal with. Most other people would rather skin their own penis alive with an orange rind rather than deal with the stuff that I talk about. And people say, how do you do it? How do you deal with the criticism? How do you deal with the hostility? How do you go and speak when people have threatened to bomb your... Because I got superpowers. I got bitten by the radioactive spider called truth. I was blown here from the planet Krypton called honesty. The powers you get when you tell the truth to your history can't be over-described. You can't oversell them because whatever you think they are, think times a million. I want to give people these superpowers called the truth. <laughs> you won't believe what you're capable of doing. It's the myth of Jesus. What did Jesus do? Jesus told the truth. Yeah, kind of told the truth about a lot of things. And then people say, oh my gosh, he could turn water into wine. He could walk on water. He could produce loaves and fishes, low where there were no loaves and fishes before. That's just a nonsense amateur way of saying he got the superpower called honesty. Honesty. Can you imagine, Trent, in your life, telling the truth to people, being honest with people? And not being always terrified of people's reactions. That means that you have the capacity to both be loved and hated. And if being hated is the price of being loved, I will take it every single day and twice on Sundays. 
as I sometimes do, right? <laughs> so that is the price. If you fully self-actualize and you tell the truth to people in your life, then yeah, some of them are going to hate you. But the ones who love you will love you forever. Yeah. And once you have that kind of love, that's the real superpower, is being loved. Half the world can hate me. I don't care. I right. live in a house of love. I am loved every day. Deeply, passionately, in a committed and permanent way. And if you haven't had that kind of love, I'm sorry. But I'm going to tell you how to get it, which is through honesty. Now, being honest may take everyone out of your life who can't stand honesty, which opens up the room, the area, the space, the universe for other people who do value honesty to move in. This is the path to the superpower of love, is honesty. You will be a different person. You will walk on water. You will turn water into wine. Oh, I'm blaspheming. I'm sorry. But you know what I mean. You will have what most people consider to be superpowers. It's called telling the truth. When Superman stopped showing off and started doing good and telling the truth. What is it to Christopher Reeves in the old Superman movie? He says, I don't lie. He says, I don't lie. He tells the truth. Yes. That's his power. People shoot at him and the bullets bounce off his chest. People attack me. I don't care. I'm sorry that your lives out there are so sad and pitiful that you have to attack someone who tells the truth. I really am sad and sorry about that for those people. And I wish that they would simply stop attacking truth tellers, start telling the truth themselves and join me in this cathedral and palace called love. <laughs> and I want you to have that. Right now, you're like a caterpillar under a John Deere tire track. <laughs> right? You got to listen back to this call, man. You've got a lot of power. You've got bodies in you. You've got death in your wake. When you've got death in your wake, you can blast awake. You understand, right? You can jolt yeah. because you have the example of death now in a very vivid way. Your parents are still alive, but you have the very vivid experience of death in the tragic story of your son, Zane. If mm -hmm. that's not enough to blast you sky high into telling the truth, the fuck are you saving the truth for? You're going to die either way. Whether you tell the truth or whether you lie, you're going to die either way. Telling the truth doesn't shorten your lifespan unless you're in Iran. <laughs> yeah. Telling the truth doesn't shorten your lifespan, but it sure as hell makes your life better. And if you want to get these thugs out of your children's lives, tell the truth to your mom. I'm not going to tell you I'm going to tell you the causality in any great detail, but the ripple effect you're going to have will be truly astonishing. People will sense yeah. it about you. Hmm. It's revolutionary in a way that can't even be described in any – it's one of these annoying things that you have to go through it. You got to trust me. Tell the truth. Once you go through it, you'll be like, wow, what the hell was I doing not telling the truth all these years? This is Tony the Tiger great. Yeah.
Who was the alcoholic in your family when you were growing up, Trent? Or the drug user? My dad drank when I was uh, till about when I could. I never really saw him drink when I was little, but I knew he was intoxicated. Was he drinking to like fair drunkenness? Yes, I. I remember a couple times when I was younger that he yelled at all of us when we were younger. Yeah. And it my be mom tough to live with left. a cruel woman. <laughs> my mom my mom left him for a while and then when he came back and they got back together, I never from eight till they got divorced, I I never saw him drink or saw him drunk. After the divorce? No, like when they got back together when I was about seven or eight. He didn't drink till they got divorced, from what right. I could see. Okay. So your father used alcohol to vanish, and you drank or are drinking deep of the cup of your son's death, in a sense, to vanish. Yeah. Right. And then when when my mom and dad got divorced, he went back to, you know, he started drinking heavily again. Did that have anything to do with his kidney damage? I know liver. I don't know if it does kidney. No, it was... It was from a from a stent surgery. the The dye in five percent of the cases, they the, the dye that they release when they do the stent surgeries. Oh. Oh, okay. They'll they'll sometimes kill the kidneys, and that's what happened to him. Right. Well, does this perspective help at all? Yeah. Yes, because I've I've always known that I've I've tried to please. Even in my relationships, I try to be the, you know, I don't stick up for myself and I apologize too much. And, and, and that's why I've been having a hard time since, since my divorce of even going out and dating in which I, I haven't introduced anyone to my kids because I haven't got to that point with any of the people I've dated so far. You'd be amazed at who you can date after you tell the truth. Yeah. But yeah, the, this has been this has been great. I mean I feel like I got some work to do. <laughs> the great secret about apologizing and appeasing is it's a form of control. It seems passive, but it's actually quite active in that you are trying to manage and control other people. And when you're trying to control people, you can't be with them. You can't connect with them because you're managing them. You're manipulating them. Appeasement and apologies is a form of manipulation. And you can tell because often if people push back against false apologies and appeasement, people get angry, right? Yeah. I mean, if, if somebody doesn't take your appeasement and calls you on it, you probably, the next emotion you're probably going to feel is frustration and anger because your manipulations aren't working. It's not nice to appease. It's not nice to over-apologize. Right. I know that. And it casts people in the role of being abusers 
and those who aren't will get the hell out and those who are will exploit it. Yes. All right. Well, I am very sorry for your son's death, but don't let it kill your life. Honor his death with a renewed commitment to life and truth and honesty. I think that's the best way to serve a horrible situation. I think you're right. At first, that's what I tried to do. And then all these other things happen. And I'm not blaming the things that happened. It's just I've, I've let life beat me down too much. And I want, want to have that renewed vigor. And yeah. I just want it back. I do. That's yeah, he's haunting you because – He's haunting you because the crime of appeasement is still in the house, right? You know that old thing that ghosts haunt until the crime is solved? Yeah. Yeah. The crime of despair, the crime of appeasement. The crime of not relishing life, which is a real crime to those whose life was so unjustly or unfairly taken. Yes. I think uh, satisfy the ghost. Live honestly. And I think that you will end up with a much better relationship to that uh, incident or to that tragedy. All right? All right. Thank you much. All right. Well, let me know how it goes. I really, really appreciate the call. Thank you, everyone, so much. Don't forget to pick up your copy. I hate to shift from that conversation to this, but, you know, we got to move on with our lives. Theartoftheargument.com. You can pick up that book. Please help out the show. Enable and support these kinds of conversations. They are life-changing. They certainly are for me. I hope they are for everyone else, too. I know that they are from our email. So, freedomainradio.com slash donate. Don't forget to pick up your tickets for Lauren Southern and I's and my Tour of Australia next month at axiomatic.events. You can do your shopping at fdrurl.com forward slash Amazon. That's it for the pitch. Thank you, everyone, so much again for the wonderful opportunity for these kinds of conversations. Have a great day. I'll talk to you soon.